Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Open the five bay doors, pal. Have we lost the Hello, Hell, do you read me? What's the story? Do you read me, Hell? Hell! Hi, I'm Adam Volerich. And I'm Dom Nero. And this is a podcast about movies and the scenes that make them special. What David Lynch calls Eye of the Duck scenes. According to Lynch, an Eye of the Duck is a moment or sequence in a film that defines the whole. Each week on our podcast, we explore a movie by finding the scene at its core. From the earliest days of the medium, filmmakers have transported us beyond Earth's atmosphere. In this miniseries, we'll be charting cinema's greatest space stories, the movies where science fiction, fact, and boundless imagination converge. Welcome to Eye of the Duck, a space odyssey. I feel like this episode should start with like six minutes of uh, of eerie coral like trembling yeah i uh i completely agree just nothing just perfect i had to like poke around on my remote because i forgot that this film starts with (laughs) i don't how long is it it's got to be like a few solid minutes right it is yeah For anyone who hasn't seen 2001 A Space Odyssey in a while, like you may forget that before the MGM titles, there is just a black screen with just like noises for for minutes. It lasts for two minutes and and 56 seconds. Um, And beyond that, so that lasts for two minutes and 56 seconds. It takes 25 (laughs) minutes and 42 seconds till a line of dialogue is uttered. An hour and 27 minutes and 46 seconds you return to the black screen 
and the choral, you know, singing resumes. That lasts <laughs> until an hour and 29 minutes and 56 seconds. And even though the uh, the total runtime of the film is uh, around two hours and 28 minutes, uh, the last line of dialogue is, is like well before that. Um, we really, I think we forget how much of a like silent film this basically is. Ah, uh, yes. I mean, we've abandoned dialogue. Yeah, the last line of dialogue is an hour and 51 minutes into the film. I think this film is, you know, it's only 1968, but but Stanley Kubrick is ready to say farewell to all of that, right? What Goodbye do you mean by to, say, oh, to, to 1968? No, to cinematic structure, to yeah. dialogue, to any semblance of like, uh, of commercial or, or mainstream filmmaking uh, style, form and structure. He is just done with it in 1968. He's, he's completely <laughs> over it. Yeah. Well, I mean, not even 68. He starts working on this like, you know, properly in 1964 and apparently would have done another another year of production if he'd been allowed to. So he was like, in 1964, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to just do whatever I want from now on. This is a this is a big moment for us, I think. This is Eye of the Duck, a space odyssey. We are should we get it all out? We're we're going where no man has gone has no podcast <laughs> has gone before. But I'm very glad to be back in space. We haven't yes. properly been uh, been outside the universe uh, or outside the atmosphere rather since Xenomorph Summer, with the exception of Pixar's Lightyear uh, a couple of weeks ago. We enjoyed Lightyear so much we've decided to remain <laughs> in the stars. Yes, for first time listeners or for our morbid or uh, wondery crowd, um, anyone who's tuning in for the first time, Welcome to welcome Out of the and Duck. Thank you. Yes, thank you for tuning in. We are very stoked about uh, being on this network and yeah, about be uh, the new listeners we have. This is a film podcast, as we introduced in the opening. In each episode, we search for the scene at the center of the film, the mythical Eye of the Duck scene, as David Lynch foretold. Journey uh, to the center of the duck. Yes, uh, beyond uh, infinity. Actually, what is the, the last section of this film is called Beyond the Infinite, right? Yeah, which I I cracked up rules. realizing like, oh man, that's what we should have called this series. I know, which, we should have. Which is, you know, we can't do because we stupidly called the last series Beyond Infinity. <laughs> beyond the Infinite is a Way great cooler. title. Yeah, really Way better title. than Beyond Infinity. <laughs> we're divided into mini series. This is how we, this is how we operate, how we function as a, as a podcast. We're a, a seasonal show, I guess. It's how we explore the multiverse. Yes. Our last season or mini series was on the films of Pixar's Toy Story franchise. And here we are in space. This will be our longest mini series. We haven't announced our whole slate because it is still growing we will be in space for the foreseeable future. I don't know when we'll be coming back. I hope we never make it back to Earth, personally. <laughs> I kind of do too. <laughs> I don't see myself getting sick of space movies. The slate that we have now is so stacked and so good. This is it's the just best like, slate we've ever had. Yes. I think we've kind of abandoned this notion of like including some movies that we're not crazy about just so it rounds out the the genre that we're exploring or the franchise that we're exploring. We finally landed on a series with this one where we're just like, we're just going to do all the best movies ever it's made. It's just all the hits, all bangers. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and it's about time. All because killer, I, no filler. <laughs> 
we are not a show that, you know, reviews or rates movies. Um, and also we've dropped our spoiler warning from our intro. We, we always, we, we will spoil everything in this show. Right. So we don't rate or review movies, but, uh, it is a lot more fun to talk about a, a good movie, a foundational movie, a movie that moves you, that moves a lot of people. Sometimes it's fun to like argue for a movie that we really like that no one else likes. Sometimes it's fun for you and I to fight over a movie that only one of us likes. That's uh, always good. <laughs> and, uh, but here in this series, um, we are talking about uh, tip top movies, top shelf movies, the kind yep. of movies that you, some of the best you, films, some of the best you filmmakers, a, uh, you want a steel book for these films, maybe a steel book and one of those gigantic coffee table books, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want, I want Tash and hard covers for all of these. Seriously. There's only a few movies out there that you're like, I want the DVD, the Blu-ray, but I really also need that huge coffee table book. I'll look through once and then leave there for, you know, my guests to see that I own. <laughs> I did just get the, um, the Phil Tippett mad God coffee table book. And nice. like, Oh my God, it fucking <laughs> rules. It's just filled with like all these insane, like monsters that he's created. And just like so much of the history of effects all in his career, all in this one book. It's, it's, really great sounds like a great coffee table book like let me look behind me and see i have i have mine stacked up yep i got the taxi driver one which is really that's nice. a good one and there is a cohen brothers one that i took from the esquire office that is really cool thief i've also got the uh resting atop the phil tippett book is uh the a24 everything everywhere all at once book which is also oh, cool. very fun yeah <laughs> This is great. This is what the show is all about for first time listeners. Us just telling you what we just, own. Just describing the coffee table books in our homes. <laughs> all right. We've been talking off mic for a while about just the very idea of us covering 2001. Now, Ridiculous. Uh, Why would we do this? Yes. Longtime listeners will know that we, we have, we've gone after some big movies before. Uh, we've, we've done an episode on... Star Wars, aka New Hope. That's, you know, a very large movie. We did The Shining, another Kubrick. Mm -hmm. We've done some, some, you know, very noteworthy movies. Uh, but this uh, is like, this is Silence the of the fish. Lambs. The more that I researched about this film, the more I learned about this film, the more scared I became of covering this because this feels like an entire like civilization. It's like <laughs> do one episode of a podcast on like an entire continent, like in two hours. How do you, where do you even begin? Just I, the vastness I, I do of this movie. I completely agree with you. Yeah. I, Not I only because agree. like, I mean, the film itself, you know, starts at the beginning of mankind and ends with, you know, however many thousands of years into the future. Uh, not only because of that, that, that is a absurd idea to try for us to try to find the center of that timeline is just madness. But if you look at the production of this film and the legacy of this film and the way that this film changed the game, uh, it's like, I mean, <laughs> It's funny because it really is. It, it seems like the industry like took 10 steps forward when this film came out. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. 
I think this this changed so many uh, aspects of filmmaking because Kubrick showed people what you could do in the medium. And as a result, yeah, like everything, everything kind of changes this is one of those inflection points. And, and one of the things that's going to be so fun about charting all the films that we are going to be covering here is the way in which all of them build off of what he's done here not build off of in the sense that like they took what he did and like they did it better but just they all are using the building blocks he has laid down to tell their own stories and in some cases calling back to him very directly because everyone seems to acknowledge that if you make a space film you are inherently uh putting that you know that movie on the table with 2001 and therefore you need to sort of uh you know hail to the king there is no movie on this list that could exist you know without this film but i've been reading this book called 2001 by uh michael benson it is really just i mean even if you're not like into like, even if you're not going to host a podcast episode on this film, sorry, the book is called Space Odyssey. It's uh, Stanley Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the Making of a Masterpiece. Space Odyssey by Michael Benson. Um, great audiobook too. Yeah, uh, I believe our researcher um, Parth Marate also read that book. Oh, awesome! And and I know, didn't it, because the two of you did. Yeah, no, that's fine. Even if you are not like obsessed with this film the production of this film is enough of an entertaining story that you, you would have a good time reading this book. And one of the amazing things I learned in the book is, uh, as I said, every, every episode of our show, you know, these films would not exist without 2001. Um, we're going to be covering, uh, Tartovsky's Solaris film. And, mm-hmm. uh, he did not like this movie. He called no. Space Odyssey a phony film with only pretensions about the truth. So it's funny yeah. to consider that at least one film on this list will be like in response to 2001 <laughs> rather than like in honor of it. But I think it's pretty safe to say every other movie on our slate is probably, you know, the director. Except for, is, I would say there's there's one there's one that is maybe not necessarily um, in response to, or you know, whatever, but uh, it's probably also not like caring much about uh you know the the path that was laid before it that's fair that's true uh you know it's something <laughs> another crazy thing i learned in the book is uh there are three science fiction films released in 1950 uh, only three in mm-hmm. the year 1950 by mid 1950s 25 of them are being made a year and then by night by the end of the decade there were 150 of them out And, uh, Michael Benson in the book is saying like, this is like an unprecedented spark of, of a a genre. Yeah. Like suddenly there are just dozens of science fiction films coming out of nowhere. It was, it's as if like, you know, five years from now, a new genre just emerges in such a huge way in film. I mean, you could probably compare it to like the superhero genre, right? Yeah. Which in itself just explodes. Right. But and also in itself is is also sort of like in response to 
I mean, essentially what you have is you have World War II, which has all of this like expansion of uh, the technology mm-hmm. uh, as a result of like military financing. And and so all of this technology grows and grows and it starts off in the military and then it works its way down to consumers. And all of a sudden, you know, the things that seemed, you know, impossible a few years ago are suddenly feeling possible. Uh, the mere fact that we had an atomic bomb sort of changes everything and, and, and all yeah. of this stuff grows out of that. And Kubrick does not like them. <laughs> he thinks <laughs> no, the, he, he's he, disparaging of all of them. He's like, yes. every science fiction film is bad. Is trash. Like he's, he's literally saying like, they are trash. These are, these are trashy films. And, uh, I think that is just a, a like an absurd starting point here for this film of like Kubrick wants to come into this genre acknowledges that this is a hugely growing genre with all of this um, influence. And he's starting out production of this movie being like, they are bad. I'm going to be the one to make the first good one. And he makes arguably like the best one ever. Yeah. I think, I think that makes him the perfect person to make this (laughs) film. It's because he's, he's essentially like he's pinpointing that this is untapped potential. You know, he's not he's not jumping in when the thing is sort of already, you know, it hasn't reached its peak. You know, he's he's coming in. He's being like, no one has figured this out yet. I think I can do it. And I think eight films into my career, I've got enough sway that I can make sure that I get the budget to do so. You know, it's funny because this is the earliest science fiction film I think we've covered on the show, except for, uh, in our, in our the winter hell miniseries. Right? Yeah. The thing from another world, 1951, a movie that is very much not trash. <laughs> also no, the twilight. Yeah. The twilight zone has been going on by now. And that is also not trash. Like there, there is storytelling on the screen in science fiction that is, very good and very like respectable. I think what he's referring to is this world of like B movie sci-fi stuff of like, you know, uh, you know, furry men from yeah, Mars. Like plan, like, plan nine from outer space, like right. that, that kind of thing. Cause he wants to go to space. He wants to show you the world of tomorrow and he wants to give you his very sort of surreal and abstract take on the idea of aliens and every other, you know, science fiction thing before this, their version of aliens is a man in a rubber suit. Right. And which can be great, but yeah. he's he's basically looking at that and saying like I would never do that. That's terrible. We usually at least try to just unpack before we get into our production history like what this film is about, what it's trying to achieve and I guess the loose notion of kind of doing a modern day, like post millennium odyssey in, in, in the form of Homer's odyssey is, is kind of the launching pad for, for Kubrick and writer Arthur C. Clarke. But this film ends up doing so much more than that. And also like veering so far away from what the odyssey is that uh, it's, I mean, it's quite hard to put, your finger it's, on what this film is about other than like it, you know, a, a, a film about humanity in transition, I guess is where I would start. Right. I think there's, I mean, there's, there are so many different ways you can look at it. The thing I find so exciting about it is that very notion, the fact that it sort of has like, you know, infinite possibility uh, contained within it. And I think that's in many ways, the point that it's so, 
you know, abstract and ambiguous, uh, even though it starts in this very kind of grounded place. If you looked at sort of the first scene and last scene of this film, they have seemingly nothing in common, which is one of the things that's so exciting about it. Um, I think humanity in transition is a is a good way of looking at it. Uh, you know, it's it's being made at a transitory time and looking ahead to what the future could hold and how we might handle that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like, how do we define a movie like this? The other thing is uh, they're using this, I guess it's called a tone poem by Richard Strauss called Also Sprach Zarathustra, um, which I'm sure all listeners know. It's probably, you know, it's like a like a household sound. Bum, 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 bum. And... Maybe the greatest uh, composition of all time. Oh, it's fucking great. Uh, it's based on Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is by Nietzsche and is about mankind as a transitional species. So I think that's that's all kind of baked into this. But I think Kubrick is also very much interested in, you know, so for people who, who are not aware, and I was not aware of this, Arthur C. Clarke, who is like this foundational sci-fi writer. Yeah, brilliant sci-fi writer. Yeah, he is, you know, tasked by Kubrick and, and, and collaborating with Kubrick to to create this story. This is very much Kubrick kind of like, and we'll get to this in the production history, but he's yeah. using Clarke's stories as inspiration yeah, short it's so stories. Fu- it's, it's, it's so, so it's funny like that vignettes, he starts, right? Yeah, it's so funny that he starts off licensing a bunch of Clark stories and then he's like, actually, I don't want any of these. <laughs> right, he kind of uses like one of them, right? <laughs> yeah. So the three, I guess the three kind of uh, vignettes of this film, which is so funny that it's like, it's kind of like an anthology of just like wacky stories about like all of, all of, all of existence. human history. <laughs> yeah. So the first one is, you know, the very fun and wacky story of, uh, the a, dawn uh, of man. A, yeah. A gorilla named moon watcher, right. Who they refer it, to him. <laughs> is that what it is? Or I think, yes. Moon watcher. That's yeah. so funny. I've been like, it is moon watcher, but like I've been reading it and writing it so often over the last week that now it's become moonwalker in my head. Which is wrong. <laughs> I'd love to see Moonwatcher moonwalking around. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Moonwatcher and his gang, um, they're being terrorized by wildebeests and other and another group of apes, pre-human gangs. And uh, they find a strange, smooth, sharp edged obelisk. And by touching the obelisk and sniffing it and licking it, they somehow arrive at the conclusion that, oh, you can use bones you can use tools. as a way to bludgeon other things to death and uh, we can eat meat and become more smart. And then uh, Moonwatcher throws his tool into the sky and the most uh, famous, most- legendary, <laughs> iconic edits in, vi- in film editing history, uh, yeah. the match cut from the bone waving through the sky to a uh, a spaceship soaring through space, and yeah. that jump cut, that that match cut is so profound and so moving, and just you know, it's like getting punched in the throat, like because you see a bone fly through the sky, and then when it cuts and you see a spaceship, you don't see like a cartoon spaceship, like you don't see something that looks 
like it's made in a computer. You see, it's, it's like you're seeing an actual spaceship. Like the, yeah. the, the effects, the practical effects are so flawless that it's like, well, I've, I've just seen everything that film can ever do. I have seen like the future and that's, <laughs> before my very eyes. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the, the most amazing things about this film is that the rendering of the future, which is now our past, it's now over 20 years ago, but the rendering of that future still feels so futuristic. Like yeah. it still, it still feels like number one, the effects all hold up and, and are basically completely flawless, but it also somehow still feels like that's the future. It's crazy. The, the, the things that they predict and also the things they get so very wrong are, are, are so <laughs> fascinating. We could probably do the whole episode just talking about like how he could predict video calls, but the quality of the video call looks like like you know it has like vhs scan well, do, lines do you know why why he uh he sends scouts to the the world's fair because he's trying to sort of research like what what might the future look like in most accurate possible terms okay. and so one of the things he does is he goes to the world's fair or sorry he sends scouts to the world's fair and he uh he learns the uh bell the the telephone company is working on video phone calls and they are the most heinous, terrible quality because it's the uh. mid-1960s. And so he's looking at that technology and he is looking to the future and saying like, okay, well, if we can already do a rudimentary version of it now, we will be able to do some version of it in the future. And it's not going to be perfect because like they're sending the signal from space to earth and back again <laughs> and that's and it's bouncing off this satellite and that satellite and that satellite and therefore it's going to have some kind of degradation in the signal that's so funny there's all these like strange like inconsistencies in how this all like that he could see that far and and not also conceive of like a touch screen like there's no touch screens right. in this he, film, but there are like well, he tablets. perceives of the iPad. Yeah. Yeah. But not a touch <laughs> screen. And, and the inconsistencies of like, he thought, and with all of this like hard work and like in the book, they get into how like Arthur C. Clarke is so good at writing science fiction and predicting the future. And so like his philosophy is so, so strong and wise that NASA scientists are interviewing him about like, what do you think we should do? Yeah. But they think that in the year 2001, like we will be on Jupiter and we're not, we're like, <laughs> we are nowhere near where this film is. But also I have in my pocket a thing that the members of this spaceship would think is like an alien obelisk. Like the yeah, iPhone quite literally, is, yeah. is so beyond anything in this film. And yet these astronauts are like going through a, a black hole in, Ju in in Jupiter's orbit. And it's just, uh, it's very fascinating to me. That <laughs> it's, it, I, I, this is what I love about looking at things from the past that are looking ahead into the future because their view of the future is so, is like our, ours would be, is so grounded in their perspective on the present. On the present, you know? yeah. So it's like, if you have you ever seen Ghost in the Shell? No. It's like, you know, this foundational sort of like cyberpunk uh, anime film. And there's this incredible... Starring Scarlett Johansson, right? Oh, fuck off. <laughs> there's this incredible uh, 
moment in the film where uh, an android character separates their hands into like 20 fingers like it doubles the number of fingers on the hands so it can hack into a computer faster it's like typing faster than because it has you know 20 fingers instead of 10 and i'm like that is such an incredible sort of you know thing of like they'll have the technology to double the speed of their typing by doubling their number of fingers and i'm like <laughs> right but that's you know now we just you know you just jack it you know you you, you log into wi-fi and you 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 yeah you could, you could do it with the voice commands you know it's uh it's this thing that's grounded in the the notion of physical hardware a thing that we have we just keep doing away with in in newer and newer ways and yet I mean, he has no real way of predicting the future, but there are so many things in this movie that are so close and so accurate that it is quite eerie. You have to imagine that part of it is this film was so influential that it kind of shaped the technologies to come. It's it's twofold, right? Where it's a lot of the technology in this film is designed in cooperation with the companies that are featured in the film. Right. <laughs> so IBM and a number of other companies, who I'll, you know, we'll talk about it in more detail in a minute, they all work on the film in the design department. And they like are essentially like futurists who are consulting with Clark and Kubrick and, and sort of helping them understand here's like where we see our technology in, you know, in the year 2001. And then they're building on those ideas and putting them in the film. And then meanwhile, people are growing up watching this movie, going to work for those companies and helping to realize some version of that technology, which is the same thing that happens with, uh, with, with, with Star Trek. Star Trek has the notion of the pad, which is essentially a tablet. And that that's real now because people who were kids watching Star Trek became, you know, people that worked in the tech field. And they were like, the ultimate piece of technology is the pad. We need the pad. <laughs> it's crazy that, yeah, the crossover of industry and like filmmaking, uh, especially because, and, and I, I think I will get into this later. Uh, I don't think that Kubrick is, as much as he is like, obsessed with getting the details right. I don't know how pro like IBM Kubrick is in this film, no. how pro like any of these, uh, any, any of these companies that appear in the film he is. And I might even go as far as to say, uh, he's actually being quite critical of them, but I want to save that for later. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I definitely, I, I also think he's being critical <laughs> of them, but I think he is trying to be accurate and he understands the forces of capitalism yes so you know yes. you 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 watch the you, you watch them going to the branded howard johnson's on the the moon base and you're you're <laughs> sitting there laughing in recognition of like oh my god it's a howard johnson's on the moon and then you're like right oh my god it's a howard yes. johnson's on the moon yeah and, and i know the, uh, and i know that he's trying to get you to feel both things yes and uh the directions of how to use a toilet in space 10 steps, 10 steps right. to use a toilet in space. But then again, like you got to know how to do it. Like you, do. <laughs> you imagine that there are steps. All right. Anyway, uh, so that's the first part. And then the second vignette of this, of this episodic uh, odyssey is uh, millions of years later, uh, a man named Dr. Haywood Floyd, he is traveling to a base on the moon for a mysterious reason that is soon uncovered to be that there is, they have found the obelisk. They found a the monolith ob- on the moon. Right. And how the obelisk, or I guess I should be saying monolith, how, how the monolith got to the moon, we may never know, but it is there. 
And when they pull it out and uh, when uh, something happens, perhaps when the sunlight hits it, uh, it lets out a horrible uh, ringing sound that causes all the astronauts to hold their helmets and looks very painful. And then uh, it just cuts. And then it cuts. It cuts to the the Jupiter mission uh, on board the Discovery. Which is probably the most famous one, right? This is when the movie really... It, it gets into a at least like more conventional like storytelling, right? Yeah, it t- it takes a while to get here. It takes about forty five minutes, I think, before we uh, we we finally get here. Um, right. and then we we're only any here for like fucking idea of what's going on at all. <laughs> yeah, and then we're only here for forty five minutes before we get to the uh, the intermission, which I think is great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, then we we find ourselves on board the the Discovery with uh, with our good friend uh, Dave and Frank and Hal. Uh, and the rest of the crew is in hibernation. Right. And it's that classic tale that I guess maybe is, is partially classic because of this film of like the other astronauts are sleeping and the, uh, the Android, the Android on, on the He's not an Android. He's an, he's an artificial intelligence. He's, uh, ah, true. So he's just the droid part of the Android. And uh, no, that's wrong. No, he's got no, uh, he has no physical form. He is, uh, he's a, a, he's a camera. He's a surveillance camera. He's a network. That's true. He's a networked, you know, he's the ring. He's the ring camera. Right. (laughs) He's he's an artificially intelligent networked camera system and operating system. uh, But he is intelligent and may possess consciousness. Not, not clear. I mean, uh, I think the that there's a million, you know, again, the, the great thing about yeah. this thing, there's a, there's a number of ways you can you can read what happens. My feeling has always been that um, exposure to the the monolith uh, has awakened ah, the consciousness within Hal. And I love that, uh, you know, be, becoming conscious makes him fallible because he becomes more human. And so by right. becoming more human, he, you know, miscalculates the uh whether or not a certain satellite on board is going to fail and the knowledge that Hal has uh, become fallible is enough to make the humans distrust him and plan to destroy him. Right. But Hal gets his revenge and uh, jettisons one of the astronauts into space. Yes. Uh, after Kuhn. the intermission, by the way. Yes, that is that is after the intermission. <laughs> right. It's just like a very funny, like abrupt cut and like... It's just intermission now. <laughs> go, which is, go which pee, is a good go get some popcorn. You, Dom, have you ever seen this film in theaters? I have. I saw it at the Museum of Moving Image in Astoria in uh, Queens, New York. And uh, on that gigantic screen in yeah, 70 I, I have two at the same theater. At the same um, one? Oh my d- God. A different time, but probably the same 70 millimeter print. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And... Yeah, of all the like spiritual experiences you can have at the cinema, that that is definitely up there for me. <laughs> That's one of them. And I got to say, we should bring back intermissions in films because me? I yeah. loved I loved going to take a little bathroom break in the middle of this one. Yes, it's a long one. Uh, it's actually not that. It's, it's like two and a half hours. Yeah, right? and it, it. I mean, at least for me, it it flies by. Yeah, yeah. I was starting this thinking like, all right, here we go. This is going to be, you know, a long epic film uh and let's let's saddle up. But yeah, then you get like to the intermission. You're like there's only like a half an hour left. Fuck. <laughs> but okay, so then uh Hal disposes of the one astronaut and uh our friend Dave Bowman 
he gets his revenge, which, and it's such a fulfilling revenge that he gets that he, uh, despite Hal not allowing him back into the ship, he manages to get back in and he yeah, floats he, he into comes in through uh, the airlock without a helmet on. Yeah. And he floats into uh, Hal's mind, basically, like his memory yeah. chamber. He like opens his, up like his the, server room, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and he uh, dismantles him piece by piece. And it is one of the most chilling and terrifying sequences in film history. It's incredible. I, I love the methodical way he like unplugs each one of Hal's memory banks and the way that Hal, Hal only gets more human uh, yeah. in this scene. You know, I feel like that's like when he, he fully like self-actualizes when he, uh, sorry to say, begs for his life and, and tells you yeah. in great detail that he can feel his mind deteriorating. I'm afraid, Dave, I'm afraid. Uh, it's amazing. It's also, yeah, it's like a weird. It, it it almost feels like ASMR. It's like hypnotizing watching <laughs> yeah. that sequence. It's this really cool handheld camera work going on too, and it's uh, yeah, which always feels so special and like unique in in one of Kubrick's films. Where, yeah, right. Because he's so he's you know he's he's known for his precision, and and so many of his shots are so like painterly and precise. And then whenever he takes the camera off yes. the sticks, you know shit is fucked up. <laughs> I was just about to say that. I mean, we've talked about The Shining on this podcast and it's the yeah. same way in that movie. Like, you know, when he's like tracking someone from behind handhelds, like, oh no. <laughs> and this is, you know, The Shining comes a bit later after this, but you can tell this is very much the same filmmaker in that he finds mm -hmm. a way to make like a full on horror movie in this film. I, yeah. I've seen this movie on like, you know, the best horror movies of all time lists. I don't know that I would classify this as a horror movie at all, but this sequence, like this is the one that's going to haunt your nightmares. Like it, it is, it is chilling. Like it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's truly scary. And it's also very funny. I think Kubrick is, it never gets credit for his like really maniacal he's, sense he's of funny humor. Guy. Yeah. And he's, he's like fucking around. He's doing in this film. Yeah. I think, I think he has, he is having fun in this movie, which is a good, uh, a good transition, I think, to the next sequence, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, the, kind the of Stargate. Yeah. I mean, you get at the end of the, the memory chamber sequence, you get this very short video message that kind of clarifies what the fuck is going on in that the other astronauts, uh, were not woken up. Um, and no one was told the true nature of this mission except for Hal, uh, because it was so important. And, and the important thing being like, they discovered extraterrestrial life and it was a, it, it sent a radio signal that originated somewhere in, in Jupiter's orbit. And, and the, the monolith is, uh, is, is what is like bouncing that signal. Yeah. So it's kind of like a, a radio like emitter, although it also seems to be maybe somewhat part of like the sentient species because then it does like travel around in space. Yeah. It's never uh, truly uh, clarified, which I think works to this film's benefit. And yeah. this all this whole final sequence that uh, Jupiter and beyond the infinite is uh, this very ambiguous <laughs> Bizarre. It's very, it's, it's incredibly abstract. Um, yeah. But you essentially travel through the uh, the infinite void, and and, right. and then you f find yourself in the in the human zoo. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't think it's ever really told to the audience that, uh, and I, I guess I, I more or less learned this from the book and, and I think from people like theorizing and reading Clark's work that the radio signal that is sent from the moon towards Jupiter sends Dave Bowman, uh, through like a wormhole, like a stargate. And through that stargate is where he arrives at perhaps the alien world. And, uh, what he if, finds if you, there if you want, is... I have a Kubrick quote for what he says is going on there. But, you know, again, I, I do think the film is is best, you know, understood as an ambiguous entity uh, and, and it should be up to you what happens there. But I can tell you what Kubrick yeah. said. Can we save it for the end of our scenes? Because I, I would like sure. to judge this film based on like what I've learned and how I connected with it and then see what Kubrick things. Cause I'm not yeah. at the end of, of the space odyssey book that I've been reading. And as the book goes on, him and Clark are fighting over the ending of this film. Like in every mm-hmm. other chapter, they're, they're disagreeing over what it should be. And I think yeah. what we end up getting in here, the same, this strange string of images that, you know, starts with, uh, this fantastic sequence of Dave Bowman blasting through a wormhole, if that's what it's meant to be. Uh, and then these really bizarre, like overcranked uh, color, I mean, overcranked in like the, the, uh, Over-saturated, the contrast. Over, yeah. Seemingly posterized. Yeah. Images of like oceans and mountains. And then suddenly Dave is, uh, oh, and, and not to mention those like very weird Amazing flashes blobs of, of, of Dave chemical uh, stuff. Oh yeah. And it's yeah. Dave screaming and yeah. his eye. Yeah, the, the, these like moving nebulas and, and flowing galaxies. Yeah. Um, all, all these sort of, you know, it's, it's the things that now, you know, you might, you might think seem a little bit old hat, but like this is right. sort of the first time that these things are visualized in that way. Right. All of this was inspired by Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness, basically. <laughs> Kubrick. <laughs> predicted that film and, and, and copied it. Uh, and then, uh, Bowman arrives in this neoclassical, uh, hotel room. <laughs> what I, the fuck I, this I is? wrote down what the, it is a specific hotel and I, I, oh, wrote, really? I wrote down what it is and then I, I, I lost it. Like I typed it in somewhere. I command Z and it, and I couldn't find it again. I mean, Kubrick uh, but it, but loves it is meant hotels, to be a specific apparently. hotel. It yeah. kind of has like a room 237 vibe. Yeah. You see the bathtub, something extremely haunting about those final images of the hotel. Uh, the, the like space pod is sitting there and then Dave is walking around, but he's older. And then he sees himself eating at a table and old Dave looks at older Dave and then he drops a glass and then oldest Dave is on the bed. And, and kid Delea, who, who plays Dave, he, he claims it is his idea that um, once Dave sees an older version of himself, the younger version ceases to exist. Uh, cool. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, maybe time sort of eats itself in this room, this infinite room. And maybe uh, all of time is happening all at once. Yeah. He sees the monolith. And then uh, we go to space and we see the, uh, what do we call him? The well, space he, child. He's, he's replaced by the space baby, the star child. Oh yeah, right. The, the star child, right. The star child. He, uh, he sits, the star child's on the bed for a second. 
and right. we love I think him. I, yeah. but you know, again, always up to interpretation. I believe the implication is that Dave has, uh, reaching the end of his life at the end of the universe has transformed into the star child. Yes. And then the star child is headed back towards earth, perhaps. I believe so. No one knows. But he's out there. The truth is out there, Dom. And we'll find out next week in 2001 in Odyssey 2. <laughs> no, Not 2000, kidding. 2010. 2010, sorry. Uh, I guess that we... Uh, you, and you know Clark wrote... Buried the um, he wrote two more books after that. He wrote 2010 Odyssey 2. Then he wrote 2061 Odyssey 3. And then he wrote 3001, the final Odyssey. Huh. Interesting. I wonder if any of the others are worth reading. Um, but that is not, we're not just fucking around. We are, we will be doing the sequel to 2001, yes. which may or may not be the only film on this list that is not like a hundred percent knockout. Although I've heard it's a pretty cool movie. So I've never seen it. I'm very excited. Yeah. Uh, very excited I. to check it out. It's got Roy Scheider in it. Yeah. I saw <laughs> with that. Should we, uh, should we go to our production history? There's much I think to we cover. Should. There's, there's going to be a lot to talk about. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate. Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk, nationwide at Costco or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation. And 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. Millions of years ago, before the human race existed, an adventure began. An adventure that ultimately leads man to confront his own destiny in an odyssey of exploration. Two thousand one, a space odyssey, written by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, with cinematography by Jeffrey Unsworth, who's known for his work on Superman, Superman 2, Murder on the Orient Express, and Cabaret. Edited by Ray Lovejoy, and starring Keir DeLea, Gary Lockwood, William Sylvester, and Douglas Rain. So, after wrapping up work on Doctor Strangelove, his seventh film, 
uh, Kubrick tells Columbia Pictures that uh, his next film is going to be about extraterrestrial life. And so he goes to MGM for funding and tells them essentially that one of the ways they'll be able to market this film is the fact that uh, they'll be using the Cinerama format, which the studio has just used for How the West Was Won, which we talked about uh, a few episodes ago. Right. Which is like a huge three screen like Yeah, this massive kind right? of roadshow projection. Uh, and, and unfortunately now you, you cannot view uh, anything in Cinerama as far as we know because it is, an, is a style of uh, projection that is no longer in use. Yeah, I mean, we could be wrong, but it seems like the last Cinerama theater was in, uh, it was a theater called The New Neon in Dayton, Ohio. And it seems like uh, that closed the Cinerama part in in 2000 but man if there is a theater that is screening that format and you know about it please uh yeah let us know please we'll do, tell we'll us do an yeah. pilgrimage. damn i would love love to see a movie in cinerama that would be fucking crazy be very cool so as we've already kind of danced around kubrick was not a fan of science fiction uh and and one of the reasons why was that he wanted a more realistic version of the future depicted on film uh and as i said before he sent scouts to the 1964 world's fair uh, so they could study the technology there but the other thing that happens as a result of that is he is given copies of the short films moon and beyond as well as the 29 minute short film universe uh, which itself is praised for its realistic depictions of outer space and is narrated by Douglas Rain, who uh, he would go on to hire as the voice of Hal. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and <laughs> Universe has, uh, has, has effects work that is, uh, that is worked on by some of the people that work on the effects for this film. So he hires, he hires them out of this as well. Right. So uh, Kubrick's interest in the, in the genre is peaked. And he's beginning to see some artists who are making things that he does not consider, in his words, to be trash. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, so he meets with Arthur C. Clarke uh, because he wants to work with him on the script. Um, and, you know, as we said, he doesn't like science fiction films. Uh, Clarke disagrees with him uh, and, and believes there are a couple of good ones out there. Um, but Kubrick really wants to deal with the future of space exploration. So uh, Clark offers him a couple of uh, his short stories. Kubrick buys all of them and then gives up on all of them. And Clark, over time, uh, buys them back. Uh, <laughs> the one that uh, they do stick to is uh, The Sentinel, which is about the discovery of an artifact on the moon left by another civilization millions of years ago. I guess some filmmakers are, like are working at this level today someone like Spielberg, but it's, it's so fucking cool that Kubrick is like, I want to make a science fiction film. Who is the best science fiction writer on earth and perhaps yeah. to ever write science fiction? Oh, Arthur C. Clarke. Okay. I'll just get him on my payroll and we will like <laughs> knock out this film together. And then I'll just like toss him aside when I'm done with him. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, do we have that in our production history yeah, yeah, of their yeah. like mean, working relationship? It's they're, they're, crazy. Yeah, I mean, you can you can help uh, elucidate it for us, but um, you know, they yes, they start working on this together. They also end up becoming inspired by one of Clark's short stories called "Encounter in the Dawn," and and that very specifically in, inspires that that Dawn of Man opening. 
Um, and, and Kubrick proposes the idea that basically they should write the idea as a novel first and then write a screenplay based on that. But because of all of their bickering and going back and forth on things, they end up writing both things concurrently. And so what, what they end up having is, is this strange, like Kubrick is sort of like a writer of this. I I feel like in the book, they have these weird like names for it, like a, a screen novelization or something. Uh, because in the book they talk about how Clark was like, it, it's a fucking pain to write screenplays. Like the format is this weird, like cryptic and very like, you know, arbitrary form that you have to follow to a T and he is a, you know, he's a prose writer. He's a prolific writer of prose, right. Right. So So Kubrick's like, all right, just like write it the way you write it. And Kubrick tells him like anything that you can write down, I can, I can visualize as long as you can describe it. Yeah. Which I love. And, and Kubrick has this to say about, um, about the, the script versus the novel. He says, there are a number of differences between the book and the movie. The novel, for example, attempts to explain things much more explicitly than the film does, which is inevitable in a verbal medium. The novel came out after we did a 130-page prose treatment of the film at the very outset. Arthur took all the existing material, plus an impression of some of the rushes, and wrote the novel. As a result, there's a difference between the novel and the film. I think that the divergences between the two works are interesting. It's just, I mean, a 130-page treatment of a scr- of, of of the film, which is wild when you consider that um, <laughs> most treatments are like 12 pages and they produce films that are 90 minutes, whereas this is a 130-page treatment and produces a film that is two and a half hours long. Yeah, and I think this is probably a good point to bring up the the stories of of working with Kubrick and the kind of notorious control freak that he was and the uh, he seemed to sort of be like a monster of of like <laughs> ridiculous proportions when you you consider like how he treated coworkers not that i'm like yeah. making any you know allegations of of the way you know any anything in 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 that way but just like the stories of him like being on set and actors trying to talk to him and him refusing to acknowledge yeah, that yeah, they're there that in yeah and instead like going through like middlemen just for them to communicate with him and him like I, someone in the book says you don't work with Stanley. You work for him. Like no matter yeah. who you are, even the greatest science fiction writer on earth, he's working for Kubrick. Yeah. And I find that so compelling. Like, what do you mean by compelling? We, like, like as, I mean, as, a, as a narrative to explore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's fascinating. Like Spielberg is known and we've said on this podcast a bunch of times, like, maybe he's the greatest filmmaker of all time. Like maybe, you know, he's got the numbers to prove it at least in that way, you know, in, in populist filmmaking, he's, he's just such a successful creator. And known um, to be a very nice and collaborative person. Yeah. yeah. But you, uh, you look at the films of Stanley Kubrick's career and, you know, just like, okay. So, Dr. Strangelove is that like inflection point, right? Because before that he does a fear and desire killer's kiss, the killing paths of glory, Spartacus Lolita. 
Um, Spartacus is the first, like, that's the big one. And it's one he gets, yeah. he gets hired onto that basically at the last minute. Um, you and know, he knocks but, it out of the park. Yeah. But none of those movies, uh, 100%, I think, resemble like what people know and love Kubrick to be as a director. And, uh, you know, th- those are like his early uh, Beatles era, right? And then <laughs> Dr. Strangelove comes around and it's like rubber soul or something. <laughs> and all of a sudden, uh, I mean, Dr. Strangelove is such a distinct and such a like so very Kubrick. And it's it's this, you know, it's this yeah, new I mean, I mean, force. I, I- anyone can have any take on any filmmaker and you know but it does seem to be that the the common uh you know assessment of kubrick if you think about a kubrick box set it's normally the run of 1964 to 1999 it's strange love space odyssey clockwork orange barry linden shining full metal jacket eyes wide shut yeah i mean what a fucking run like i don't mean to speak for you or any other but like you know, if I'm making an assessment of Kubrick's career, I think very much like Strange Love is is the Kubrick that we know and love today. Uh, the ones before that are interesting to explore, and certainly he made a name for himself, and you can see like semblances of his career to come. But I, I think, you know, after Doctor Strange Love, what a fucking run! I mean, we yeah. we talked about the Pixar run in our Toy Story series. Uh, he, he does not make a bad movie in his entire career. And I mean, there's certainly a case that like, you know, American film as we know it is owed to Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Uh, and that being said, he's also known to be like a a legendary pain in the ass and like an <laughs> extremely hard person to work with, extremely oppressive on set. And I mean, everybody in the, uh, in the, everybody seems to say he was like a nice guy to like hang out with and like weirdly down to earth person, but the way he works, you know, the, the, the hundreds and hundreds of takes that he does just to get these, these little details. Some people are like that. I've, 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 you know, I've definitely had relationship with filmmakers where we've been buddies. I've enjoyed being their friend. I've decided to work on a film with them and halfway through, you know, the first scene, I'm just like, holy shit, I'm never working with this person ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, there's a, a thing in the book about how he, uh, he needed this, the grain of sand, the color to look exactly perfect for the moon. Mm-hmm. And he made them dye like eight tons or something of sand, just a, a shade darker stuff like that, that just blows your mind and makes you wonder like, does it really have to be that way? Or does it just have to be the way that he wants, you know, arbitrarily, uh, whatever it is though. I mean, he made 2001 a space odyssey, so it's hard to argue <laughs> with it. <laughs> it's true. So uh, initially, the film is called Journey Beyond the Stars, uh, but they, of course, later changed it to uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, as a direct reference to the Odyssey, uh, because Kubrick wants to uh, give the film a little more gravitas. And apparently astronomers are always arguing that, like, no, the new millennium starts in 2001. It doesn't start in the year 2000. It's 2001. Apparently that was part of like the inspiration for the name. Interesting. That I did not know. Um, So yeah, you know, Kubrick is difficult to work with. Um, You know, depending on who you ask, uh, people will say that he and Clark, you know, got on well or that they didn't. Um, But there were definitely times on record where Kubrick is very unhappy with Clark. 
And he actually at one point tries to replace him with uh, other authors, including uh, Michael Morrock and J.G. Ballard, both of whom refuse uh, out of loyalty to Clark. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And one of the sources, uh, main sources of tension between them is that Kubrick makes uh, Clark sign an agreement, uh, basically saying that Clark would have to write new segments for the film, which he could not publish as short stories until the release of the film. And even though Clark would get advances on his salary for the stories, he would still ask Kubrick for the ability to publish them while production was still going on. And Kubrick did not like that because he wanted these ideas to remain unique to the film until the film was done. (laughs) Yeah, they get into in the book that as much as Kubrick was like particular and, you know, controlling in his films and his work, he was the same way with his contracts and Mm. he was like notoriously again a pain in the ass about like getting like the perfect deals wow should have been a lawyer (laughs) clark and kubrick approached carl sagan on how to depict the aliens um initially kubrick considered having actors portray them uh but sagan said that alien life forms would most likely not bear any resemblance to life on earth uh, which is of course what leads kubrick to representing them abstractly yeah but then the other argument is that on the earth, we see nature repeating itself in so many ways. And the other argument with Sagan is that aliens would resemble humans because because of the way nature repeats itself, only a certain like shape can can be the way that, you know, intelligent life is. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm interested in that argument. Uh I've never heard that side of it that like you know, the patterns in nature repeat and therefore yeah. life anywhere would, would, would bear would, some similarity. Yeah. It would be like bipedal or, you know, would somehow be upright creatures. What do you think of, uh, what do you think of aliens? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the absence of, of aliens in this film or the um, way that they are portrayed? I really like it because I think, so much of what makes this film uh, fantastic to me is the way that it in- engages your imagination. Um, it somehow it presents all of this incredible imagery, some of which is you know things you have never ever seen before, and even still, it asks you to take part in it. It doesn't just show it to you; it asks you to take part in what it is showing you. And I think because of that, the absence of a physical presence for the aliens um other than the the monolith itself uh i find very compelling uh very engaging and very fun it is one of those few movies that somehow gets away with it right (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it's it's a hard thing to do because it does feel like on the one hand they're building up to you know at the end of this you're going to meet god you're going to meet the aliens (laughs) you know like they're going to the end of time you know you know or something the end of the universe wherever it is he's going he's going a great distance and going there ages him so you expect that there will be some kind of payoff in in that way uh in the in, in the physical presence of an alien but instead you see what happens to dave and i think that is that is kind of enough, you know. Um, yeah. The notion that he becomes a giant floating baby is uh, is enough for me to go. Yeah, aliens probably uh, probably were part of this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the very like basis of filmmaking of this art form is this very fundamental choice 
of on the director's part of what to show and what not to show. Right. That, that is, yeah. that is what filmmaking is. It's just showing things to an audience or not. Which itself, and, I, I think in an abstract way, like to go full galaxy brain feels like an extension of the notion that when you watch a film, a film is projected back at 24 frames a second because that's, you know, with that many frames, your brain just fills in the rest of the information. And I feel like that notion, like taken to like an abs, you know, abstractly like adapted into storytelling is sort of like what I don't show you, you will fill in on your own. That is one of the core strengths of of Kubrick as a filmmaker that his his confidence in what not to show I think is so profound and so you know legendary you think of about a, a movie like The Shining and so much of what's terrifying about that film is what Kubrick chooses not to show us like the first time that Danny goes into room 237 we don't see what happens in there, but when he comes out and he has bruises around his neck, uh, I mean, that's, it's the notion of it is what inspires so much terror, but you have to have so much confidence. I think we've talked about this before, like the confidence that you have to have to be restrained. Yeah. As a storyteller to, to, to know your audience and know the craft so well that, as long as I, you know, throw these ingredients in the pot, you know, the dish is going to come out the way I want it to be. The fact that like he doesn't force feed any of this and that you can still come out of 2001 having a, a fulfilling experience, because as you said, there's so little dialogue in this movie. There's so little conventional, you know, structured storytelling at all. I mean, go to like a screenwriting teacher and talk about 2001 i, mean, yeah, I feel you like can't, it would like destroy 2001 them, right? in a screenwriting class yeah i mean all <laughs> this stuff that we're constantly hearing of like you know there has to be an a and a b plot there has to be this there has to be, like none of that is happening here i mean if anything the main character in this film is like i don't know the universe or something like, <laughs> <laughs> that's the protagonist i guess <laughs> and and yet he is so confident as as a storyteller that it works somehow yes he is. So building off this notion of confidence, this is, you know, sort of the other uh, point of contention between Clark and part of what, you know, sort of, you know, bisects the novel from the film is this notion that Clark wants clarity on everything and Kubrick wants to be ambiguous. He has that confidence of of, uh, of reservation. And so uh, they argue a lot over um, explanations of the the monolith, the Stargate, the, uh, mm-hmm. the Star Child, um, all of these things Clark wants uh, explained in, in clear terms and, and Kubrick refuses. So earlier we, we brought up our, our phones, this notion that, uh, you know, they would they would, you know, trump uh, most of what's in this film and and confuse the hell out of the people in it, Uh, which is very interesting when you consider that the monolith was originally going to have a big old screen on it. Screen, right. Yeah, Yeah, it was going to have a screen that would... uh, would 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 display information and images and and whatnot, and that this would uh, would in, in some way directly teach the apes, um, you know, offer the apes self awareness and and teach them how to use tools and how to kill. I mean, it would very much it, it was maybe going to be a uh, just a, just a film a screen iPhone. in portrait mode. 
right. Which is so funny that the tablets in this phone are nine by 16. Like he fully yeah. predicts that. He predicts portrait mode filmmaking. And yeah. It's another thing that I keep thinking about. Like he's thinking about like, what if this is what, you know, the way we communicate and the way Can't that we tell it. stories, that the way news media, you know, tells stories. What if it all becomes, you know, flipped? What if it's in portrait mode? We are kind of living in that now, but it's still, it, it, I was posting on Twitter about this earlier. Cause I'm wondering like, has anyone cracked the code yet? Like, I don't think it'll ever make sense that they'll have like a portrait mode movie theater, because I don't know what the seating arrangement looks like. If it's going to be like a sliver of a screen, unless you, you do like a tower where people are like <laughs> sitting in this weird, like elongated, like, you know, stadium seating arrangement, it just makes sense that a screen would be wide. So a bunch of people can watch it like a stage, but like, are we going to start, I mean, and and like, also we read from left to right is the other thing. So like we, we right. read horizontally. Like there's, there's reasons why these things are, are wide and not tall. But the, the, the only reason we have vertical video now is because a phone, it, the, the, the one device hand, to, rule, right. to rule them all fits easier in your hand in portrait mode. People are so uh, incapable of turning something 90 degrees that yeah. all of media has had to uh, move along with the hardware. Yeah. I think once this hardware... Uh, becomes obsolete, which uh-huh. it'll, it'll eventually become replaced by something, whether it's, uh, you know, augmented AR, reality in yeah. all of our, like, you know, either implanted or into us or, or in some kind of uh, glasses of some kind or a contact lens. Once we get there, I, d- I doubt, you know, you think we'll be thinking go. of 9 by 16 video as, as anything more than a passing phase. I mean, on the one hand, thank fucking God, because it sucks. And I have not seen anyone, like, conquer it. I know you know, like Quibi gave it a try that any, all of their shows, you could turn your phone, which I still haven't tried. I was really interested just to see it. I could not wrap my head around, like, how do you enter a film production knowing that every one of your shots, you have to cut out the two sides. I, mean, I, I have no fucking clue how I, that I would, haven't worked, worked on anything narrative that, that required that, but I have worked on stuff that we had to frame for 16 oh, yeah. by nine, one by yeah. one and nine, and by, nine 16, by 16, you know, but like, where is that film where like, you know, there is like a spiral staircase and you can see the bottom and the top at the same time because it's framed up in that way. Like, uh, who's the, uh, I think it's Scorsese who says that, it's so hard to make a close-up with a wide, uh, right you know, on a two, in, three, in five a landscape. Ratio. Yeah, because the human face is round and it fits better in a square. Or you know, humans stand upright; they fit perfectly in a vertical aspect ratio. <laughs> but I don't. I mean, unless it's out there, I would love somebody commented on Twitter being like, well, "I guess you haven't seen like the TikTok film nerds." I don't want to see like the movie on TikTok. Like, I want to see a filmmaker make a vertical film and be convinced that this is irrelevant and like you know, I only necessary. want to see it if it's projected directly on the monolith. That's the only scenario in which I'm willing to uh, consume any nine by. 16 video i want to see it in that in that very very thin stadium seating theater <laughs> that we're describing that you like <laughs> you sit on like an elevator you basically yeah it's I was gonna say it's like the tower of terror um yes and you just you, sh- you shoot up and down the screen um 
All right. So some uh, some original storytelling choices. Uh, at, at first, they didn't really know what was going to happen to Bowman after the Stargate sequence. Um, they had planned for, uh, at one point, for everyone on the Discovery to survive. Uh, but eventually, uh, around uh, 1965, they, f- they finally come down to the conclusion that, that Bowman has to be the only survivor. Mm-hmm. Which I agree. I think being alone in space is the best kind of movie. Um, Hal, originally named Athena and was going to be coded as female, uh, which would have been, you know, a a cleaner, you know, prediction of the future because all of our <laughs> voice assistants are, you know, the standard setting is a female voice uh, for, uh, yeah. uh, I can't say it because I have one in the room, um, but there's the Apple one, there's the uh, Alexa, <laughs> oh, which listening. is the, the Amazon one, and then there's the uh, Cortana, which is the Microsoft one, and mm-hmm. And then you, what is it? You just say, hey, Google to, to Google. I don't know what Google's voice sounds like, um, but all the I'm other sure ones are uh, initially female. Yeah. It's always women. It's very bizarre. My yeah. my wife has insisted that we change all of the voices in our house and, you know, in preparation, uh, you know, for one day having a kid that we don't want to raise a child with them learning that you can just command a woman's name to do something for you <laughs> that's so, very interesting that's, our, I mean, that's our, a, a good idea um, yeah more interesting that you I, I like that you were like we will keep the um the terrifying smart <laughs> the technology in the house yeah <laughs> uh we will continue to expose our child to this but but we'll make it a man <laughs> <laughs> hey that's i mean you gotta teach it something uh i have no good response to that <laughs> moving along <laughs> um more on how, uh, you know, originally uh, they had considered um, having it be a physical robot. But, uh, you know, again, they were trying to make the film of the future and and sort of realize that uh, giving it a, a physical form is something that one of these B movies would have done. And so they so they moved away from that. Um, and Clark also said, at what stage we switched to the red eye and had Douglas Rain's voice, I don't really know. Um, and I've been trying for years to stamp out the legend that the word, the letters H-A-L, were derived from IBM by one letter displacement. Of course, HAL actually stands for Heuristic Algorithmic, H-A-L. <laughs> I didn't know that that was like an urban legend. That it's one it, of those memes, you know, like I, yeah. I, I've seen that, you know, like the image of the red eye right. and then, Did you, you know, know, it's yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> It's in like, it's even in like the motivational poster, like format. It's really funny. (laughs) Um, Bell Labs, uh, who had also inspired the, uh, the video phone in this film, uh, they at the time were experimenting with creating synthetic voices for computers. Uh, and they found that the easiest way to test voices and test their vocalizations was to have them sing, uh, because they would pronounce, they would overpronounce all of the vowel sounds. And so John Pierce, who was was working on on one of these voices, he actually had uh, you know programmed the the voice to sing Daisy Daisy, which is how it ended up in the film. Oh, I love that! Yeah, wow, and such a perfect song. It reminds me. I, I always get it mixed up with the song that the uh, the, the girl in the radiator sings in uh, Eraserhead. Very similar vibe. Mm. Uh, yeah, very similar really vibe. Upsetting. It's something yeah. so upsetting about <laughs> hearing him sing that, that yeah. deep voice. It's uh, I love it. It's great. Keir Delea also loves it. He says it's his favorite uh, favorite scene in the film. 
the uh, the notion that Hal could lip read this is uh, this is an idea that Kubrick had that Clark really pushed back on as he found it improbable. Uh, of course, he very soon after learned that scientists were actually trying to train computers uh, to lip read uh, and admitted that Kubrick was right. <laughs> Take that, Clark! Yeah, the greatest so- science fiction mind <laughs> the world has ever seen. Yet Kubrick somehow tackles him. I mean. Uh, because Kubrick Everybody, is storytelling first in that in, in that notion. That's he's just, true. He's just like the most you know, like the coolest thing to happen here would be if the computer could read read their lips, and Clark's like, nope, computers can't do that. I mean, that being said, though, everybody in the book says that when Kubrick puts his mind to something, he's like, he's so inquisitive, he's so open to learning. If you'd go into his office, it would just be covered in like all these astronomy books and. Mm-hmm. He like, he bought a telescope and he really learned, you know, he learned about the future and he learned, uh, you know, about uh, <laughs> astronauts. And I mean, space travel was such a exciting thing at that time. And of course he directed the moon landing. So I knew uh, you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but speaking of uh Kubrick hired Fred Ordway and Harry Lange, who were space scientists, uh, formerly from NASA, and they helped ensure the scientific integrity of the film. They worked with over 50 companies, uh, including the aforementioned IBM uh, and, as, as, and also GM and Bell Labs, uh, in order to, uh, to be as accurate as possible. Ordway uh, also worked with Dr. Werner von Braun, uh, who was friendly with Clark. And if you think that that name sounds like the name of a Nazi scientist, you are correct. Um, But he is, of course, also the father of space travel. Um, (laughs) And uh, and the team consulted uh, on the film to make sure that all of the vehicles and modules uh, and props and everything would be as, as scientifically accurate as possible. I mean, I, that doesn't really do anything for me. I guess I don't. It does that ever, because you, you, it, it's, it's, you're not looking at this and going like, "Wow, it's so accurate." But you're feeling the world and feeling like I live in this world. This world feels real enough for yeah. me to step into. And I guess especially at the time when science fiction is, yeah, like you know, Ferryman from Planet Z, uh, a movie that is so, you know caught in 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 the reality of actual science you know fact rather than fiction must have been you know really striking and and a progressive idea yeah but today when these arguments come out of like actually there would not be any sound if that happened in this it just it doesn't matter to me i'd rather just see a good space movie but yeah we'll get that we'll get to that later in this in this mini series (laughs) although there is um i think with the exception of like you know, the sound of the, uh, their footsteps on the moon, on in the moon scene, there really is no sound in space uh, no. in this film. You, you, It's mostly just confined to the breathing inside their, their spacesuits and, and the score. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think there's... Is there footsteps on the moon? I thought everything I, I in could, space is silent. I could be silent. wrong, but I, but I felt like I heard... Uh, I Maybe I, maybe um, I'm, you know, in my, my, maybe my brain filled in the blanks, but I felt as though I heard the, uh, the sound of the, the boots on the, uh, the, the surface of the moon. I'm referring to other movies in this miniseries where they take full advantage of, you know, the fiction of it. Yeah. 
There was one of these special features on the Blu-ray, which was from the period in which the film was made. And it was, uh, I, I can't remember the name of it, but we'll throw it in the show notes. But it had this piece that almost felt like it had been left on the end of the the, the featurette by accident or something, where um, I think this is someone from MGM is looking into the camera and talking to, uh, you know, these potential like corporate sponsors and and saying that they should work in film and they should work with with people that write magazines because it's the easiest way to educate the public on your corporate future plans <laughs> and and would show the world how you could anticipate the opportunities and needs of tomorrow and it it just plays into this thing that that you've we've already sort of brought up this notion that like Kubrick is featuring all of these brands in the film directly. And like, maybe that's, you know, on the one hand, it's accurate. On the other hand, it's not nice. It's definitely cynical, you know, and it feels even more cynical when you watch a clip like this, where, where, who I, I, I'm not sure who, who he works for, but he's essentially saying like, you know, you should work on 2001 because it could be great propaganda for your company. One of the brands kills the main character or not, you know, kills one of the astronauts. <laughs> I mean, jettisons them into space and kills them. <laughs> like, like IBM or whatever house it was manufactured by. Yeah, it's true. One of really the only uh, scientific errors in the film is, uh, I guess, when when Dave is exposed to the vacuum of space as he as he jumps into uh, he jumps in through the airlock, he holds his breath. And I guess in reality, the thing he should have done is exhaled before uh, before being exposed to the vacuum. I think it had something to do with the the change in in pressure outside of his body. If the more full of air he is, the the more unpleasant that would have been for him, uh, or the, the quicker he might have uh, might have expired. Um, but uh, but other than that, apparently they were they were dead on. I mean, in the Last Jedi, Princess Leia goes out into space, floats around <laughs> there. She seems fine. Did she die in space and then come back? She, I, she like freezes, right, and then she yeah, floats she around. starts to freeze, and but the she she lives because of the Force or something. This is a truly um, bizarre sequence. We have to. I admit. like that sequence. It's weird. It's I love weird. that film, like but it. that is really bizarre. <laughs> Um, of course, one of the, uh, the biggest changes, uh, from the script was this notion that the, uh, the end would have, uh, voiceover narration as the star child exploded every nuclear weapon on earth. Um, and Kubrick threw this out because he felt it was too similar to the end of Dr. Strangelove. Uh, and, you know, we've said this movie has very little dialogue in it. Uh, and this is because, uh, by the time they enter production, Kubrick has sort of just gone through and crossed all of it out. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that ending. Oh, the notion of the Star Child blowing up all the nukes? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that the film sets out and being like, we are going to like achieve world peace or like show how world peace can be. I mean, I guess it does start with this violent notion of like, you know, the discovery of technology is the discovery of a weapon. Right. Uh, there is some mention in one of those special features on the Blu-ray, which... You got to make room for the Blu-ray corner here, right? It's a pretty good Blu-ray. That's true. Um, so for once, we both have the same Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, we have the Zavi exclusive uh, 4K uh, steelbook, which has 
you know, a, you know, fantastic 4K restoration of the film, uh, and then a uh, a Blu-ray that is just chock full of uh, incredible featurettes. It's got eight eight great special features on it, uh, including uh, you know an hour and fifteen minute long radio interview with Kubrick. Plenty of stuff on the making of the film, uh, a great featurette on the legacy of the film, featuring some of your favorite filmmakers, including uh, a good friend Steve Spielberg. Uh, and then, uh, you know, one of my favorite featurettes on, on the disc is one from the actual year 2001, which is narrated <laughs> so and presented funny. by uh, a good friend, Jim Cameron. Yeah. George Lucas makes an appearance in one of them too, doesn't he? Yeah. I think he's in that legacy, um, of yeah. 2001 one. In, in one of those, somebody mentions that, uh, when that famous match cut from the bone to the spaceship, that that ship at some point was going to be a floating like weapon of some sort, uh, like a, like a, uh, a satellite missile or nuke or something. Oh, but right. I don't think that that's what is intended in the final product, but it, it's really funny to think about a film like this and then think through Christopher Nolan's career, a filmmaker who is certainly inspired by Kubrick in a ton of ways, but in Kubrick's case, he explains almost nothing. And in Nolan's <laughs> case, he is so obsessed with explaining everything. Right. You must know out loud. all the details. And then I feel like he finally like learns his lessons in a movie like Tenet. But the way that he like tries to grow as a filmmaker in that sense is he just makes everything a little bit confusing and hard <laughs> to hear. Like, that's not what Kubrick is doing. They go doing. to the future to save the past. I don't know what you're confused about. <laughs> Kubrick is is uh, is is making these, like, compelling ambiguities. Nolan is... Uh, we can talk about Tenet another day. We've already talked <laughs> about gonna, Tenet a lot on this about, show. <laughs> we're going to talk about our good friend Chris Nolan at some yes, point. Don't worry. We will. We will. So production officially kicks off at the end of 1965 at Shepard and Studios in England, um, where Kubrick is more or less uh, residing full time now. Um, and at Shepard and Studios, they are shooting the, uh, the 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 crater excavation scene. Uh, but once they finish that, they move over to MGM Studios in Boreham Wood. Production shoots uh, on 65 millimeter film, the uh, Super Panavision 70, and. Then this is where things get really fun, where they start building all the stuff. So mm. for the spacecraft interior, Kubrick hires Vickers Armstrong Engineering Group, who is one of Britain's largest aircraft manufacturers, to build a humongous rotating centrifuge. This set could revolve a full 360 degrees, was 38 feet in diameter, 10 feet wide, weighed 38 tons, and cost $750,000. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And it's used for not that much stuff in this movie. <laughs> not that much stuff, but it, it, it is one of the best practical effects, you know, ever. Because yeah. the cameras are fixed inside of it on these specially, you know, built, you know, first time ever, you know, invented for the film, these gimbal heads. And so the camera is, uh, is in motion in relation to the motion of the wheel. And it gives the idea that, uh, you know, this is a, a change in gravity and that the, the people are moving through it using, you know, anti-gravity technology or boots, uh, you know, depending on the scene. It's just so striking that this is 68 and it's not till like, you know, movies like Rocky in the seventies where the, the Steadicam 
becomes like a core part of, of, of filmmaking, a core like technique and technology, but to see a practical effect like this and to see virtually no flaws in the camera that it doesn't shake at all. Yeah. Is, I mean, it's, it's, it's this, these three axis gimbal heads that um, have been built by these like optical designers and, and they, you know, they, they build these mounts specifically for these cameras and for them to be built into these sets. So it's this, this thing where you, you have the budget to do it, you know, perfectly and it is perfect. And it's completely bespoke, you know, it is bespoke yeah. and custom for the exact shots that they're getting. Crazy. Yeah. And again, it's not like, this isn't like the major plot point. Like I know like Christopher Nolan does something like this in, in Inception, right. With that moving set mm-hmm. of the dream. I mean, it's this big compelling moment where everything flips and this is just like Dave, like running circles. But I, the but centrifuge. I think so, this is the thing that I love so much about space films. And that starts here is that so much of what is fantastic is the mundane. That's because true. The, the act of existing in space is so inherently fantastical, and yet it's something that we can do. I mean, not can do on a grand scale. We can't all go to the fucking moon and like hang out. But like we have an international space station that people live on for long periods of time. You know, yeah. we, we, we have reached that point. We send people up in manned aircraft into and past the atmosphere. I'm going to talk about the mundanity of this film later. I have a lot of a lot of thoughts about that. Good. So this rotating set, it could separate modularly so that they could shoot the set from different angles. Um, but when it was all fully together, there was a gap in between the segments where the cameras could be mounted on these gimbals. And according to Keir Delea, the actors would sometimes have to essentially, you know, turn the cameras on themselves uh, because there was no room uh, for any operator to come in. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. For the uh, shots where actors would be on opposite sides of the wheel from one another, they would be strapped uh, to their seats and the centrifuge would then move so that the actors could appear to be moving uh, throughout the space. It's it's like magic. It's fucking it is. crazy. It's just the most <laughs> wonderful uh, magic trick. It's flawless. Um, we've, yeah. we've looked at a lot of movies like, you know, like Jurassic Park and a movie where everything changes and, you know, in the technology of filmmaking. And a lot of that movie, like you can see like the seams. Uh, you you don't see any seams in this movie, I think at all. There is one that I'm about to get to. Okay. Um, before I get to it, I will say that because of the intricacies of many of these effects, Kubrick would direct more or less remotely. He would sit far away from everything, watching performances on monitors that were broadcasting, not from the main camera feed itself, but from hidden sort of cameras within the sets Uh, and he was monitoring performance this way and then speaking into uh like a microphone hooked up to a pa system and you know that might sound you know familiar in some ways to a modern day video village where everyone Mm -hmm. sits around a a bay of monitors and they just watch the feed from the camera and then they you know maybe direct via radio but like that's not the standard at the time they have not yet like built you know wireless video transmission uh you know these are they're shooting on film you know they haven't they haven't figured that out yet um so the fact that he's doing this um is is also wild yeah. I mean, I'm sure our listeners know, but this is like the, this is still very much the era that they're, 
they're measuring like focal depth with like mm-hmm. tape measures, right? Like this is, Oh yeah. You're, yeah, you're, you're pulling focus via tape. Measure, yeah, yeah. You're very much not getting a live feed from the camera in any way. Right. If any no. live feed he's getting on his, like whatever, like, you know, prehistoric it's, it's television video setup, cameras. Yeah. Like, it yeah. probably looks like horrible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is where the the one seam in the film is. Uh, in order to make that pen float uh, in the uh, in the spaceship, uh, the way they do that is fucking amazing. They just know, stick so the cool. pen to a piece of glass using a piece of double sided tape, which was a new invention at the time. Double sided tape, um, and they would rotate the glass uh, using ball bearings. Um, and the stewardess would come over and, and pull the pen off of the glass. And it's when she's doing that, she also has to remove the double-sided tape. And if you are watching it now on like a, you know, a crystal clear 4K Blu-ray as you and I are, you can see the uh, the leftover sort of adhesive residue. But that's it. That's the one scene in the entire film. You really got to look close because you can see it get detached, right? Yeah. Like the way that it, it gets pulled off. But what a cool, like old school in camera effect. It's amazing. I'm like, it's funny, like desperate that, that's, to do that. Like, I yeah, right. Do like that. that's, that's all it takes to make a floating thing. Like you just need a really clear piece of glass, right? Well, it's like when we, when we talked about, you know, Looper a million years ago, like there's that scene where like the, the kid blows up the room and, and everything's just suspended on, uh, on, on fishing line. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Uh, so we've already touched on this notion that Kubrick was, uh, uncompromising and difficult to work with. Um, he banned all the MGM executives from the set because he did not want them interfering with his vision, uh, which shows you the power he had that he could just tell them you are banned and, and get away with it. <laughs> Uh, every day before filming, the actresses that played the stewardesses uh, had to go to Kubrick's uh, trailer in costume, uh, but with like plastic, you know, sheets over them so that there would be no dust or grime getting on their costumes. And they would have to discuss their thoughts of the day. Um, and so, you know, they would say things like, uh, you know, I believe that like immortality is the fate for all of us. And he'd be like, yeah, that's a good one. Great. Well, we'll go with that. And like they would have these very strange conversations like that. Um, An actress, uh, Heather Downman, said he always communicated indirectly. And if you were sort of working in a scene, he would not communicate with you. He would communicate with the first assistant and say, please, could you ask Heather to do so and so? Or could you ask Heather what she thinks about that? And then if you said it directly to him, he would pretend he couldn't hear, which is (laughs) deeply strange. Um, Not very nice. Yeah, it's a weird way to treat your collaborators. Yeah. Um, Very weird. Ed Bishop, one of the actors, he said, I wasn't on his wavelength. It's as simple as that. We cut to the point on day four when he would say, good morning, and I would really wonder what he meant. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that is the, the, uh, the reputation that Kubrick, like, wanted to create of, like, you know, if I, if I am this bizarre to them... Maybe they will see me as this this mythical being of, you know, and trust me with all of their, you know. The thing is, though, that like at least he has the decency to make 2001, you know, like instead, like, I, you know, he, he inspires so many fucking assholes who just make yeah. a bunch of dog shit. Like that's that's where it becomes. Uh, I mean, it's not, I'm not I'm not saying it's not problematic here. It's definitely problematic here. It's far more. It's like but it's like 
at least there's 2001 at the end. You know, <laughs> like again, not defending any of it. He could just be nice and normal to all the people that work with him. Like he could do that. It would be a better world if he had. I'm not defending it in any way, but at least we get 2001 at the end. Meanwhile, there's a million assholes out there who just treat people like dog shit and then are mediocre. Yeah, I think directors like him set this weird precedent for for young filmmakers of you grow up hearing these stories. So that's what's in, that's what's in your head when you get to do it yourself. I remember directing or, you know, like, yeah, I guess directing and producing a sketch show in college and like the night before the show, like. I don't know that I yelled, but kind of, uh, talking down to the whole cast after the rehearsal being like, this is really looking like shit guys. Like you guys need to get your shit together because I grew up hearing these stories about directors who like treat their cast like this. And I grew up being in productions in like high school where you have shitty directors who hear these stories and they do that to the kids. And like looking back on that, I'm wondering like, why would I ever speak down to another human being? Like no matter what, like, you know, the, the power structure is. It's very easy to not act like this. Yeah. Like you ever get yelled at in a corporate setting by another human being who is like your superior or something like your, your manager yells at you and you sit there wondering like, how is this like an acceptable way to conduct a business? Like, why would you ever raise your voice at another person? Yeah, (laughs) It's so bizarre, but men like Kubrick, I think are, are responsible for that. Uh, those, you know, for that way. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the, the industry has certainly seen a reckoning because, yes. of, because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Keir Delea seems to be one of the uh, only people with a, a positive experience on the film. He said, he put me at ease completely. And from there on, it was just like working with another wonderful artist. He was open <laughs> to suggestions. It didn't mean he would use them. But you never felt you had to hesitate. And sometimes he'd say, yeah, that sounds interesting. Let's try it. <laughs> and you never know with these, yeah. you know, glossy industry no. m- making of documentaries. <laughs> no. So uh, Dan Richter, who played the aforementioned Moon Watcher, the head of the Tribe of Apes, uh, he was a mime. And so uh, he did his audition wearing a black leotard where he mimed being an ape and was hired on the spot. And the rest of the apes in the film were mostly part of Richter's mime troupe. All of the apes took ballet classes and went to the zoo to study real apes. And Kubrick actually gave Richter a Super 8 camera to uh, take to the zoo and film monkeys so that they had reference to study. (laughs) You know what I love about this is, uh, I I haven't stopped thinking about this. He did, uh, what is it, the the Nathan method or the, (laughs) what's it called? Is it the Nathan method? Yeah, I think so. In in the rehearsal, if (laughs) listeners, if you haven't seen this, in in, uh, Nathan Fielder's uh, The Rehearsal HBO series, it's really good if if you have any interest. The Fielder method. He calls it the Fielder method. The Fielder method. He... Uh, the whole show is about him like imitating life and training people to, uh, he basically rehearses people to interact in real life situations. And 
uh, this strange, strange sequence of events leads him to create an acting studio called the Fielder Method, and basically the basis of his his studio, which is you know a satire of these ridiculous acting studios and and methods out there that they teach you know at places like NYU and you know the the, the insanity of the acting method. His is no more insane than the others in that he has somebody go and um, just basically like spy on another person and yeah. live as them and copy them and like just try to the immerse themselves. Them. <laughs> yeah. And just become them. And that's basically what this guy did to become Moonwatcher, right? He just went to the zoo like every day and he had like this ape friend, right? Who he would yeah. see like every day. He just used the fielder method to become <laughs> a gorilla. <laughs> and then you watch that after seeing and hearing about how he did it. And you're like, damn, like this man looks like an ape. Like he really nailed it. It's, I, it's I pretty uncanny, notes, right? I wrote in my notes, this is the best fake ape in, it in, is, in right? all of cinema like you know you know and you I know mean, the, obviously the 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 cg apes in planet of the apes are fantastic but this is oh, the yeah. best this is the best practical ape ever and the you know the makeup is near perfect but the thing that really makes it work is that there's oh, motivation the and, and the performance yeah and uh the other the other thing that i think really helps this opening sequence not just look like a bunch of guys in gorilla suits is uh well one they do have some actual gorillas like in the scene right yeah. and, and all, the, all the baby gorillas are are baby gorillas being you know sometimes being held by by humans but um yeah. they are all real baby gorillas but the other thing is that we're to understand that these are like pre-human creatures so like if right. they they're, look they're a little between bit between ape and human yeah you can you can you know suspend your disbelief to be like all right so they're a little bit grow a little bit human cool <laughs> yeah but it is really really profound how good it looks <laughs> yeah richter also claims that the ape picking up the bone and smashing it was his idea um but clark recalled finding kubrick throwing a broomstick up in the air with it uh <laughs> and and it's spinning and as a result he thinks this is where kubrick got the idea <laughs> we'll never know <laughs> yeah for all of the film's uh zero gravity sequences uh they would use wire work uh, and essentially the the actors would be hung in such a way where they were blocking the the view of the wires so oh. they're hung from the ceiling the 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 sets themselves are vertical the camera is beneath the actors and then the actors would wow. have to move their bodies in a way that would sort of perform the act of floating in zero g and also themselves hiding the the wire um this was made easier by how unsafe it was uh, because <laughs> they used only one piano wire um, to suspend the actors. Um, and for the sequence where Delea comes in through the, through the, uh, through the airlock, uh, yeah. he's doing this stunt without the helmet on for narrative <laughs> reasons, which means he's essentially just being, you know, dropped down into this, uh, this centrifuge and, uh, and smashing into the, uh, the inside Damn. of it. Um, mercifully, Kubrick only did two takes of it because on take two, uh, Delea managed to reach out and grab that handle perfectly. Wow. That must have been the only time that ever happened with Kubrick that he allowed two <laughs> takes. <laughs> yeah. The one time when it does, I guess you see the seams a little bit, is them walking around on the moon. We've seen enough like actual moon footage and enough movies that take but place they on the moon. Yet. Yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, they're not like 
bouncing around the moon like they should be. They're kind of just walking slowly, right? Yeah, but then also you do have this uh, this notion of the the weighted boots with like you know Velcro yeah, on them. True. So you know you you could narratively justify it as they're walking slowly because they're wearing uh, right. clothing that's so heavy that it would weigh them down in this gravity. That's yeah, that's a good point. So uh, stuntman Bill Weston, you know, he really thought these this this method was very unsafe, and and Kubrick specifically would not allow a second safety cable uh, because he did not want there to be any risk of it appearing on camera, and he also would not allow for there to be a safety net, uh, despite the fact that he was suspending Weston thirty feet in the air. Nice. Additionally, he would not allow for any uh, holes in the space helmets on the suits because he didn't want any uh, any light to possibly like come into the helmet from from the outside. Uh, which means that our stuntman Bill Weston is trapped inside this spacesuit, just losing oxygen. And at one point, he actually passes out because he can't breathe. And so in order to alert the crew that he was in an emergency situation, he contorted his body into the sign of the crucifix. Oh my God. Yeah. Kubrick then stopped the crew from helping Weston saying, damn it, we just started. Leave him up there. Leave him up there. Jesus. Yeah. This is again, like, I don't care if it looks real. If, If the actors are safe and it's a compelling story, I don't really care if it's perfectly real. Yeah. I I agree. It's a bridge too far. Um, And Kubrick knew this (laughs) because when Weston recovered from oxygen deprivation, uh, he came to set to confront Kubrick only to find out that the director had left the scene and he did not return to set for three days out of fear of what Weston was going to do. To cool the tensions, Weston was given his own dressing room, a raise and a fridge full of beer. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Weston had to say of the experience, one of the great things about Stanley was he had an incredible, tremendous artistic integrity. I think morally he was a bit weaker. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Kubrick worked on the effects for the film until March of 1968. Uh, and he, as I said earlier, hired the effects team from Universe, Con Peterson, Douglas Trumbull, and Brian Johnson. When Johnson first met Kubrick, he actually mistook him for a one of one of the painters on set because Kubrick was quote disheveled and uh, and working on painting the sets. He asked him, "Do you know where Stanley Kubrick is?" and he said, "I am Stanley Kubrick." <laughs> Amazing reveal. Yeah. I am Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> there were 205 uh, special effect shots in the film and uh, none of them used blue screen. Uh, because uh, Kubrick was afraid of picture degradation. Uh, so they achieved these, these these effects using front projection. Again, perfect effect. If like, if uh, VFX never like grew anywhere further from this, like I feel like they'd still look pretty great. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the, we, you know, we, we've, we've basically just circled back to this with the, uh, the volume. The volume is essentially, you know, uh, yeah, that's it, true. I mean, it's, more, it's more rear projection than front projection, but um, it's essentially that. Uh, the film, of course, uses uh, extremely detailed model work here. Um, the satellites in the film are, are up two feet long, whereas Discovery One was a full 55 feet long. It's a big one. 
Uh, but being that large allows it to be uh, so extremely detailed, which is what makes it look so real on camera. Anytime they're doing a, uh, a static shot of one of these, uh, these, these models, these spacecrafts, um, production would uh, essentially take photos of the models and then uh, use that to place the ships into the film. Uh, but for shots where the camera was moving, the uh, models would remain stationary and the camera would move around on a motorized camera mount uh, that they could, oh. uh, they could do to repeat the, uh, the move and the speed, essentially paving the way for motion controlled camera rigs. This is more or less the, uh, the first wow. one um, and is what, you know, paves the way for uh, all of the effects in Star Wars. Uh, none of that yeah, is possible say. Uh, w- without this happening right here. I mean, there are a few, very few other movies that look like those original Star Wars films, right? Mm-hmm. That have this fun space miniature stuff. And this is one of them. I yeah. mean, it looks so I mean, this great is what, in this. This is what paves the way for them. Yeah, yeah. The Stargate sequence is accomplished using uh, a stop motion animation technique known as slit scan photography. So... The way this works is essentially you print an image onto uh, a translucent plate and you lay that over a backlit table. And the translucent plate itself has uh, one or several slits cut into it that the light can pass directly through. The camera then approaches it from a vertical ramp, which is not looking directly at that slit, at that light. And it moves towards and past the image one frame at a time. And it's this that creates the strange warping effect. Oh, wow. Yeah. And because of the nature of the effect, you know, it is stop motion. A 10 second sequence at 24 frames a second requires 240 individual adjustments of the camera. Wow. Yeah. So you can imagine uh, how labor intensive it is, uh, it is to do this. Um, and this is a technique that, you know, it gets used in, uh, in other science fiction uh, films as well. So it gets used in the, the uh, intro sequences for, uh, for, uh, for Doctor Who, and it gets used to show the, the Enterprise going into, uh, into warp speed in Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, but this technique is so expensive and so time consuming to, to do well that they basically use the exact same shot uh, every single time the Enterprise goes to warp speed. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. But it, Star Wars isn't using this to do warp speed, I guess. No, Star Wars does not use this. Um, the The technique is originally sort of credited to uh, John Whitney and the, the opening credits of Vertigo, but Douglas Trumbull takes the the uh, the work that, that Whitney did there and, and really sort of solidifies what we now consider to be, uh, you know, uh, split-scan photography. Uh, and of course, when he's working on this film... He's now one of our, you know, our great legends of uh, effects work. He's only 23 when he's working on this. Fuck. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and until, until Trumbull developed this technique, Kubrick would apparently walk around the set saying, someone draw me an image that doesn't remind me of anything in a color that doesn't exist. <laughs> That's the thing with, uh, you know, creating these otherworldly extraterrestrial uh you know, beings, images, we're going to be talking about this through our whole series, I'm sure, is you cannot make an image for a human being that they haven't already seen. I mean, it's so hard. How do you uh, conceive of an alien creature when like 
we as humanity still cannot conceive of what they may look like. It's right. just impossible. I mean, you, that's it's way too much to expect of a filmmaker. And I think that's the case with so many science fiction films is like the whole time you're waiting for that reveal of like, what's the alien going to look like? It's got to shatter my mind. Uh, it almost never, ever happens because it's always just so familiar in the case of a movie like alien. I mean, I think the xenomorph, like they use our familiarity to those features as like right. a, uh, you know, because they're, they're trying to titillate and horrify you. So they're exactly. referencing things yeah. you can recognize in making it unrecognizable. Right. That's great. But then you get to movies, like I remember seeing Super 8 or like War of the Worlds and like that era of science fiction, you know, the new, the Spielberg mm-hmm. War of the Worlds and being like, I was so excited to see what these aliens would look like. And they just look like another, you know squiddy octopus you know yeah. by like a big scary monster thingy when is someone going to show us something like new right <laughs> but what you know, is new like how- here this was when they showed us something new <laughs> well in this it's what it's a black <laughs> square and then it's like a sea split of screen uh, sea yeah. Of color. Yeah. yeah i don't know <laughs> it's true yeah um, but I mean, there's a reason why this film gets called, you know, the ultimate trip, you know, this, this notion yeah. of sh- show me an image that reminds me of nothing in a color I, I haven't seen. <laughs> um, that's, that's how people talk about, you know, like tripping yeah, on hallucinogens, LSD. you know, yeah, this, this notion yeah. that like, you can't describe a trip to someone else because it's like describing a color they've never seen before, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, so the shots of the sort of like moving nebulas in this film, uh, those are basically uh, colored paints and chemicals that have been poured into uh, into a tank and shot in slow motion in a dark room. Uh, and that's actually the very first thing that Kubrick shoots for the film. Um, so you're just watching sort of like chemicals interacting and, and you know, slowly expanding and contracting in, the, in this tank. I love that it's it's him in like full mad scientist mode. Yeah. Of uh I mean, do you have it in the production history that this is called he called it the Manhattan Project? No, I didn't have that. <laughs> yeah. It's like this bizarre, like the first thing they do for the production is like he goes and gets all these like noxious chemicals and yeah, Douglas and like Trumbull traps is, is, all these people talk- in there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Trumbull's talking about how like, yeah, and we all just breathed it in. Yeah. <laughs> but they do say in the book, like he would he would like he would stay in there like longer than everyone else. He would somehow manage it. And it was like this, like super like high secrecy, like no one could know what was happening in there. (laughs) And really all he's doing is just like, you know, pouring one color chemical into an, yeah. (laughs) But that, you know, organic stuff on the screen in yeah, that amazing. sequence is really profound. It's cause there's something that super effective. It's real. I mean, there's something that is yeah. so touching about it because it's real. I, yeah. I think, again, it's like the apes. Like if it has real motivation behind it, somehow it, it connects with us. Yeah. And I mean, that's the same thing with the the slit scan stuff that we're, we're talking about where um, it creates these sort of abstract, you know, um, warped, you know, things that are like hard to identify. But they are at some point, like they do like tickle your brain. And, and in some ways, because they, the images that he's originally using are like paintings and architectural drawings and like photographs. They're just being so warped and, and, yeah. and modified beyond comprehension that like, at first glance, you can't understand what they are. Right. And this is not to like shit on CGI. 
as everyone does. Uh, no, we're but, just talking you know, about how a different way of doing it and a, and a way that is still effective today. Right. I, I think there is something a bit lost though these days in that, like when we see these real things, we really connect with them. But that being said, there is so much computer generated stuff on screen in movies these days that look like flawless and perfect and we fully connect with it. You can't yeah, like sure. make that jump to say like, Oh, I wish we could go back to the era of, you know, practical stuff. Like, well, I mean, you're watching, well, then you should, you should go and watch uh, strawberry mansion, a film made for like $40,000. Ah, yes. I can't wait to watch that. Yeah. So those, uh, those very strange, like floating tetrahedrons. Do you remember those from the Stargate yeah. sequence? Yeah. Those things were also real. Those were real, plastic uh objects that were just these white you know uh 3d models and they uh photographed it with the stargate sequence itself projected onto it and they would project it onto one side and film it and then they would project it onto the other side and film it and then the other side and film it and then the other side and film it and they would do multiple exposures to composite them together in camera wow it's so funny that so many of these things are just like effects in the effects rack, like the default, like basic yeah. effects rack in a, in a video editing software. Like from the earliest days of, of editing for me, there's always just been the slit screen effect. It's just there. Yeah. It's just fully replicating like these, you know, arduous practical methods. Yeah. <laughs> They ultimately went uh, $4.5 million over budget and 16 months behind schedule. Um, although, uh, you know, Trumbull said that uh, Kubrick would have gladly done another year of production. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, $4.5 million in 1968 is a lot of money. Sure right? is. I wonder yeah. what that would be today, whether it's seen like the hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe. That is $37 million over budget. All right, so less than I expected, but still That's quite still a lot of money. An insane amount of money, Tom. <laughs> yeah, it's still quite a lot. It's the GDP of a small nation. Yeah. <laughs> so Kubrick hired composer Alex North to write a score for the film. The two had worked together on Spartacus and Doctor Strangelove, but while editing, Kubrick used classical music as temp score and then just decided that he liked it more than the stuff that North wrote. Ah, uh, the temp score always wins, right? Mm-hmm. And North <laughs> did happening. not find out about this until the premiere of the film. I'm sure he'd love that. Yeah. Kubrick said on replacing the score, however good our best composers may be, they are not Beethoven or Mozart or Brahms. Why use music which is less good when there is such a multitude of great orchestral music available from the past and from our own time? When you're editing a film, it's very helpful to be able to try out different pieces of music to see how they work with the scene. Well, with a little more care and thought, these temporary tracks can become the final score. <laughs> um, North was uh, was bummed. But then again, like orchestrations like the Blue Danube become, you know, so iconic and like timeless yeah. and everlasting because of this film. So it's hard to be upset, but... Oh man, the music in this is just so good. It's the best. It's it's yeah. so good. Uh, you can actually hear some of North's score uh, on YouTube and uh, maybe we'll put the link in the show notes. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to listen to it. Interesting. Yeah. 
So the film premieres April 2nd, 1968 in Washington, D.C. with a cut that is 160 minutes long. After the premiere, Kubrick and Ray Lovejoy, they edit the film over a four-day period between April 5th and April 9th to tighten the narrative, and they cut 17 to 19 minutes from the film. This included uh, spacewalk scenes, a scene of Bowman getting a spare part from a corridor, and some of Paul's murder. The new cut was 143 minutes long, with the first half being 88 minutes, followed by the intermission, followed by the remaining film. However, the film had already been sent by distributors to the theatres, so Kubrick himself had to send instructions to the theatres to make the edits themselves. Wow. Yeah. So this then means that there are several different versions of the film shown across the country, with many audience members actually seeing pretty poorly spliced movies. <laughs> I mean, you know, the film is so discordant and bizarre. I'm sure the, <laughs> the normal moviegoer and even the refined cinephile watch this being like, oh, that's a weird cut. All right. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, there are weird cuts in this. That, that cut when... Uh, when the astronaut is uh, jettisoned in space, it's very jolting and strange. That's true. It's like those like three cuts that bring you close well, up this, to how. This is what he's saying. They, they cut some of Paul's murder. Right. So, so then pro- what, what there probably you, are some, you know, there's probably some missing, missing things there, you know, intentionally. Yeah, so, to but, see it. but intentionally made, made stranger perhaps. Um, Kubrick never wanted the trimmed footage to be seen and had it burned before he died. His assistant, Leo Vitali, said, I'll tell you right now, okay, on Clockwork Orange, The Shining, Barry Lyndon, some little parts of 2001, we had thousands of cans of negative outtakes in print, which we'd stored in an area at his house where we worked out of, which he personally supervised the loading of to a truck, and then it went down a big industrial waste lot and burned it. That's what he wanted. Despite this... In 2010, Douglas Trumbull says that Warner Brothers found the 17 minutes of lost footage in a Kansas salt mine that had been used for film storage. However, as of the date of this recording, there are no plans uh, for the footage. (sighs) So funny. I mean, and then you have all these, you know, fans these days fighting for like director's cuts and everything. And Kubrick is like, no, burn it. (laughs) It's gone. (laughs) I have so much respect for that, though. Yeah, no deleted wants, scenes. He wants the film to be the thing yeah. that is shown in in theaters on the screen. He wants the film to be the film. Remember, we didn't talk about this in our in our Eye of Twenty Two episode, but you know when the Batman came out, there's that short appearance of the Joker in the film, right? Right. Yeah. You have this a little bit of laughter, and you see a bit of Barry Keegan, but then. Warner goes and puts out this extended version of that scene. Right. Like the following week. Yeah. And then that somehow, like that just kind of blew my mind. And maybe that is like the, like film nerdiest thing that, that, that I could say, but like, just think about that for a second, that this ancillary piece of content comes out and becomes part of the film's narrative and part of like the story of the film. It's not in the movie. It's not released in theaters, but today I guess like, you know, theaters are, 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 
you know, kind of obsolete in, in at least like the way we interact with like these content worlds and universes. And I guess really if a filmmaker like wants to, they can release a movie and then like a five minute clip on YouTube that, that attaches onto the film and then like another two seconds on HBO max and then like a, a podcast and then, and, and like they could release all this ancillary content. And if you're a fan of it, like you are expected to just watch all of it and it's all part of the narrative. I've just never heard of like a director being like, this didn't make the cut, but like, it's part of the film now. I mean, it's out there. We're not going to put it in the film, but like, you yeah, got to watch I mean, this to understand the next movie. It's fucking been, strange, isn't it? It, it? I mean, there's been cross media narrative before, you know, like a great example is like the matrix when they're doing the matrix sequels, they have oh, yeah. you know, the animatrix, they have these like comics, they have the films right, themselves, the they have the end of the matrix video game, but that's different where they're sort of looking at the story they're telling and they're like, how can we explore other parts of the right. stories in other mediums to create a larger world for the audience to like immerse themselves yes, in. Very different. Whereas this is just like, we had some shit on the cutting room for, floor seems like the kind of things that that you would probably like, you know, burn a house down to be able to watch. So like, here it is, uh, you know, it's canon now. Right. And like you piggies will lap this up <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, it's part of it. it it's just a very bizarre notion. <laughs> yeah. I would not be surprised if, uh, you know, this is entirely speculation on my part. I would not be surprised mm-hmm. if Warner brothers, uh, knew there was this additional piece yeah. new new reeves had cut it because it, it it like lessened you know the film in some way and basically said to him like you know if we put this on twitter it'll go viral and uh, right. it will drive ticket sales do you mind if we do this like we're gonna actually not not do you mind if we do this we're going to do this it would be in your best best interest to get behind the decision you know i'm yeah, pretty sure like, that's uh, probably how it went down it's like Dwayne the Rock Johnson putting out that post credit scene of, I mean, it, it got leaked online and then the post credit right. scene of Henry Cavill appearing in Black Adam and, you know, Henry Cavill right. is back as Superman. And then like the day after the Rock being like, you know, just blowing like all of the surprise and anticipation and being like, yes, he's back and it's in the post credit scene. And then the post credit scene just showing up online like, why did you put this like as this secret little thing after the film? Why did you just put it in the fucking movie at this point? Like, yeah. And then, of course, well, there's, I mean, there's that? a whole there's a whole story <laughs> so about how that yeah. how that post credit thing happened, and yeah. you know, the the Rock basically willing it into existence against right. Warner Brothers. Uh, you know, he changed the hierarchy of power in the DC <laughs> universe. You have to admit. I I will admit the hierarchy of DC Studios <laughs> did change. That's all I'll admit. <laughs> it did indeed anyway all right so the film doesn't play well upon its initial release uh critics trash it and audiences at first do not show up mgm uh then considers pulling it out of theaters completely but theater owners urge them not to saying that the film started to gain popularity among younger hippies um and i think we all know what that means you think they were doing drugs and seeing the movie? Oh my God. <laughs> kind of mind blowing that people saw this movie and didn't love it. I mean, you can watch it today out of context. If you didn't know it was this big thing, you could watch it and, and 
feel the power of it, couldn't you? I mean, I assume so, but there are also people that don't like it today. So what can you do? That's true. I I once encountered someone who said, (laughs) I just don't like it. Uh, It's just a boring movie. And I, I kind of, it's just such a funny way to discount this movie. I kind of admire it that like, <laughs> like just to, to, to just discard this entire, like, you know, as we said, like this universe I mean, of a film is, just by being like, it's kind of boring. <laughs> it is objectively it is really fucking funny. hilarious. I just saw somebody share online that the Gen Z has like discovered. Yeah. I think it was a new hope. They were like, the post, it was like a, a screenshot of a TikTok or something that said, uh, yo, like the 1970s Star Wars are old, but they're like low key fun to watch. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I'm laughing at the notion that someone could watch a film that has more or less, you know, it, it changed everything about filmmaking in its day. <laughs> and it changed everything about the way that films get made, get marketed, get released. It, it changed everything about the film industry and the technology of filmmaking and the effects of that reverberate around the the world today in this very moment you are living in a world created by that film and (laughs) the notion that you could just watch and go yeah it's all right maybe we're just getting older i mean we're not really getting old but like we are though uh, i guess maybe we are it's just very generation each successive generation is going to get older quicker than the previous one that's that's culture moves at such a, a fast clip now. Yeah, I mean that, it is moving that, fast. That we are already fucking old folks. <laughs> I mean just going back to the, the sentiment that you would watch this movie and just be like it's boring. <laughs> I mean, fair. If it didn't move you, it didn't move you, but it's just that's funny it to, dis- it's, it's all, to it's discount all, all this that way. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So two thousand one, a space odyssey was released domestically on April 2nd, 1968. On an estimated budget of $12 million, the film brought in $60 million domestically and $65.8 million worldwide. The film received a divisive critical reaction. According to Keir Delea, 250 people walked out of the New York premiere, Rock Hudson being one of them, saying, what is this bullshit? (laughs) Pauline Kael called it a monumentally unimaginative movie and Andrei Tarkovsky was unimpressed with the film as an addition to the science fiction genre, as we already mentioned, uh, and uh, and makes Solaris perhaps uh, a little bit in response. The film went through a uh, significant, shall we say, re-evaluation over the years, with most critics considering it a classic, one of the best science fiction films, and one of the most important films of all time. Uh, Scorsese listed it as one of his 12 favourite films of all time in 2013. It received three Academy Award nominations, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and one for Best Special Visual Effects. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach— blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Noom.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. For first-time listeners, this is the big moment for our podcast. We are going to explore our Eye of the Duck scenes, the, mo- the moments that we feel uh, define this film. As David Lynch says, you know, a, a movie cannot exist without moments like these. And yet uh, the moments themselves could never be without the movie surrounding it. It's the, the perfect the little gem. You did mention Pauline Kale, and that would be a good segue into my scene if you'd allow it. Sure. How do you feel about that? I will allow it, but I will, I will say to you right now, um, just so you know, Mine is guaranteed to be chronologically before yours. Um, if that, if you have any interest in discussing the film in chronological order, no. Okay, then go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have been inspired lately in you know kicking off this new series, this new era for Eye of the Duck, and I've been reading a lot of film criticism by people like our friend Pauline Kael, who I consider to be my favorite film writer critic. Um, and her writing inspires me a lot, especially in the way that we talk about movies here, because she was writing so very long ago, but the things she was writing about back then are so very relevant today. Mm -hmm. And one thing that she gets at a lot in her writing is uniformity in filmmaking and film form, film structure, visual language, how, uniform film has become American film. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something <laughs> that's that a familiar is, sentiment. <laughs> yeah. Something that's on my mind a lot. You know, they just dropped the trailer for uh, Ant-Man Quantumania, the legacy of Kang. I'm sorry. It's, it's called, called Ant-Man <laughs> and the Wasp. You can't forget the Wasp. Oh, sorry. And like the baby ant, woman right who's his his daughter is she ant girl i don't know but the but the film is called ant-man and the wasp quantumania legacy of kang (laughs) anyway that movie looks like it goes to some really fucking interesting places in the known universe in the quantum realm and boy does it look uninspired and uniform and maybe that's because we've seen so many of these marvel movies made in this same style or Uh, Maybe it is just an uninspired 
visual language. I don't know anymore. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we talked uh, on our, on our eye of 2022 episode about everything everywhere all at once and how it's amazing that that film comes out right around the same time as Dr. Strange and the multiverse is madness. Both of them, these sort of multiversal, you know, uh, hopping, uh, hopping narratives and everything ever all at once feels like the most unique thing ever made. And, and multiverse of madness <laughs> feels like, you know, almost nothing. You feel nothing. Yes. And I'm not here to, to shit upon Marvel. Really. I, I've seen almost all of those movies and like quite a lot of them. And I think looking back on movies like infinity war and Endgame and what they were able to accomplish is still like, you know, earth shaking moments in, in movie history that we'll still be unpacking for years to come, mm-hmm. whether they are like, you know, monumental achievements in film form is, is a different discussion. I'm sure Paul and Kale would have thoughts about that. Anyway, I've been thinking a lot about uniformity in film and I'm going to take you through this movie. And at the end we will, we will reach where my eye of the duck is. I'll try to keep this as short as I can, but so uh, as we explain, this movie begins at the, you know, millions of years ago with the predecessors to humans. And it begins with this black screen and this discordant, maybe terrifying, like throbbing, trembling, chaotic, primordial soundtrack. Um, it's pure chaos. And then we see the opening moments of humanity as like absolute brutal chaos, madness, you know, just hairy creatures, uh, and wildebeests and growling, screaming monsters. And then the apes discover this monolith. And it's the first thing in however many, I don't know if it's like 25 minutes in, it's the first thing that we've seen on screen that is not absolute chaos. It's a complete Mm. opposite, actually. It's uh, straight lines. It's like sharp edges, smooth surfaces. Mm -hmm. It is like this very uh, just kind of basic shape Um, and something that is not naturally occurring. Mm -hmm. And when the apes see this shape, uh, it causes them to transcend and, and to evolve. And when we see the results of this evolution, we go millions of years into the future, you know, the fruits of whatever this, this, uh, this monolith uh, has provided to them. What we see is humanity in the future in space, and which is like brilliant and incredible that they have like reached these outer limits of, of the Earth's atmosphere and this technological achievement. But what we're really seeing, and I think Kubrick goes out of his way to highlight this, is how mundane it is Mm -hmm. and how bland and how fucking uniform it is. It's just a bunch of like... You get the tool and once you get the tool, you build civilization and civilization restrains all the chaos. Yes. It takes all the madness and chaos and, you know, outrageousness of, of, you know, creation and, and it becomes uniform and they have rules. And I mean, you need rules to have, you know, a society, but uh, Kubrick, as I said earlier, is a very maniacal man. And I think he is very intent on showing us uh, how kind of like absurdly 
commonplace all of this is for the astronauts. Mm-hmm. First thing we see, we see a plane flying through space, which even today, you know, what is it? 22 years after this film, where this film's supposed to take place, the idea of just a plane flying through space to the moon is fucking like insane. Something that we, we still cannot, we're not even (laughs) close to that. And this astronaut is fast asleep and, uh, he's not even looking outside and, you know, Kubrick, like he zooms in on this stuff. We see the toilet and, you know, the rules of, uh, mm-hmm. of how to use a toilet in space, the blue Danube, uh, you know, orchestration is, it's beautiful, but it's also very like structured and it's, mm-hmm. it's, there, it's kind of this like tedious practice and just like this structure of mundane life. Like, uh, yeah. you know, it's a, a natural order out in space, just as it is here on earth. Everything has its place, its rules. Um, the flight attendant wears her uniform, the astronaut, you know, exists in this hierarchy. When he gets to the space station, uh, everyone is, you know, they have just discovered, you know, intelligent life, but the way they're all speaking about it, I mean, he's hiding it, but the way it's all, the discussion is, is coming out. It's all, how are you? Oh yes. Good to see you. You must come over for dinner. What next time we're back on earth, you know? <laughs> yeah. When, when they get to the war room, I wrote down like all of this, all this fuss, like all this preparation for this. It's, yeah, it's the most yeah. boring fucking thing you've ever seen. Yes. And uh, this is not an uncommon thing for Kubrick's films. Like I keep mentioning The Shining, but think about The Shining and think about those moments when like Jack Torrance is talking to his kid and his wife. Mm -hmm. And it's so mundane what he's saying, like, you know, we're going to go up to the hotel. We're going to stay here. And but like you can tell beneath that mundane, there is this like carnal like madness, right? And it's yeah, in the Nicholson's performance. The yeah. And that, that is the thing that Kubrick returns to throughout his career is like beneath this, this tedious structure of, of human existence, there is this like this, this madness. Okay. Yes. So then as we go further into the film, we meet this artificial intelligence that itself is, is store is, is very mundane. It's hello. Hi. Hi, Dave. Like it's, it's, uh, you know, this very smooth talking and, and they speak to the, the robot in very, you know, mundane terms. How are you? Hal? Oh, good to see you, Hal. And, and uh, it is in this, this structure, this, you know, this hierarchy of like, of existence that, to me, this robot ends up rebelling and, and killing the humans. It's, it's sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, what happens when, when, uh, when humans become so structured and that there is such a hierarchy in place that like this, uh, this AI thinks that the, the mission is so important that it ends up, you know, destroying the astronauts who are there to like conduct it. And it's like this, this funny irony that, you know, even in this, this tedious and and highly uh, controlled environment, the humans are are still, uh, are still getting wiped out, but eventually has big crew expendable energy. Yes, (laughs) exactly. But then we get to the Stargate and this is my eye of the duck. And It is this, uh, this, 
this moment when, you know, this is a movie about humans in transition. And this to me is the final transition of the movie starts with chaos and then moves into uniformity and then for the human race, for existence, for Dave to transcend, he must transcend uniformity. I mean, he, he literally mm-hmm. goes through like a rainbow portal of, yeah. <laughs> like, of madness. And yeah. then in that final sequence, in this ambiguous hotel room, there are no more rules. Like there is nothing left. It is a complete and utter like farewell to, as I said, all film language, all film form, everything, even time, like the way that time, uh, kind of eats itself in, in that, Mm -hmm. in that sequence, it is Kubrick, I think kind of like embracing this outlandish and eccentric and unpredictable and most importantly, like distinct filmmaking of all of, of his own. It's this singular notion that he reaches. And I think it's, you know, we can talk about how maybe there is a bit of like queer theory here that like, you know, we must like reject the uniformity of, of Hmm. the heteronormative like society we live in. I could definitely hear that reading, but what interests me most as, you know, a film podcaster and, and filmmaker and writer is, uh, is, is what this says about movies. And keep in mind, this mm-hmm. is 1968 film. As we were saying earlier, Kubrick has been going through his career making movies that for better or for worse are kind of like big studio pictures that he's hired to make. And then mm-hmm. Strange Love comes out. He kind of changes the game, asserts himself as this more singular tone, this voice that's going to like fuck shit up. <laughs> and then this movie comes out. And I think this is really like this kind of battle cry of like we as filmmakers and as artists and creators, which, you know, Kubrick was through and through like a full artist. He was a photographer. He's a painter. You know, he was a, a guy who was in the art world it's him saying like, reject uniformity, embrace like outrageousness and be be unpredictable, be outlandish. Nobody has any idea what happens in that final sequence of 2001. And that's good. I think that's him being like, you don't need to explain everything. Like embrace, you know, your, your distinct voice. That is the thing that's important. The uniformity of film language is what's going to bring this form like to the shit like that. I mean, to like that, that's what Pauline Kael has been writing about in, in what I've been reading. She's writing about that in like the sixties, that the uniformity of like American blockbusters is going to fuck up this really colorful art form. And it fully did. Yeah. <laughs> and now <laughs> when you go to the theaters, if you just went to a movie theater on a random day and picked out a random movie, you do that like you know, 10 times in a row, chances are you're going to see like the same movie 10 times. Right. Yeah. And that's like, I agree with you. That's where we are. And, uh, I think it's such a brilliant statement that he makes here. And this embracing this ambiguous ending is, is such a masterstroke. I love it.
I I really like that read. I think that's a, a great way to to look at what Kubrick is doing here, or one of the many things that, that he is doing here. I think you know the special thing about this film is is again the the ambiguity allows uh, allows us to experience it all in the way that we uniquely experience it. And I think that um, this notion of the the rallying cry feels very real. Uh, the film opens with you know the this this sort of this great act of violence which itself feels like something piercing you know through uh you know we're, we're looking at that and you're saying it's it's chaotic it's chaotic for us to mm-hmm. look at it's uniform for them it's un- in the sense that this is all they've ever known that's and true then they, yeah. they themselves you know they they discover tools and and that ape you know moon watcher he 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 cries out uh as well as as things transition um you know, and then of course we we feel this notion of the the cycling of time. Um, it's it's all in there. Yeah, it's a fun read. It's a a transitional film, I think. About yeah, they keep saying in that book about uh, humans breaking away from the cradle of Earth. That Earth is just like a stepping stone to what's next. And I think I, I mean again, like we could really get into like what uniformity does to like a civilization and like how it, you know, crushes, uh, outside voices. Yeah. It crushes originality, crushes anything that doesn't get politically established as the norm. Um, yeah. And I think that's part of like the downfall of some of the astronauts and, and, and the, the humans in this film, but what it's saying about movies, I think interests me the most. Yeah. I like that. So I think ultimately we, uh, we're, we're, we're coming down on similar, similar ideas here, but, uh, I've approached this very differently. Um, we've already mentioned, you know, we already had the Blu-ray corner and this, uh, this Blu-ray comes with this, this 45 minute doc called, uh, 2001, the making of a myth. It's made in 2001 features James Cameron as the narrator. Uh, and in the introduction, he turns to the camera and he says, As our films get even more spectacular, 2001 reminds us that it's the ideas behind the spectacle that are still the most important special effect of all. I think that's a good quote to think about here because it ends up being at the heart of what I think you've just been talking about and and what I want to talk about. However, before I talk about the film, uh, which is made in the 1960s, I would like to talk about my television, uh, which was made in the, uh, Mm. the year 2017. Uh, I watched this film on a 4K OLED HDR television. I mentioned this TV, uh, you know, on the show every now and then, uh, not ever as a brag or as a flex, but simply because I do think it's important uh, to mention how we watch the things we talk about on the show, because I think the viewing experience can greatly impact what one uh, discovers and sees in what they watch. Mm -hmm. One of the amazing things about HDR OLED screens is uh, this notion of the infinite or near infinite contrast ratio. Basically, the screen is capable of displaying so much information and so many gradations of information that the brightest point in the image exists in infinite distance from the darkest point. And the way that this phenomenon is achieved is through something called local pixel dimming, a process by which the pixels that are supposed to display black simply shut off. Instead of illuminating the absence of color, the diodes emit nothing. <laughs> the other important thing to remember about OLED TVs is that they are always, uh, almost always made of, of glass. I promise you this is going somewhere. 
This film opens on black. Two minutes and 56 seconds of black. And this blackness is accompanied by this slow, low drone that swells and shrinks and expands and contracts. And for two minutes and 56 seconds, you sit in front of nothing. Except that it's not nothing. Because you're watching this film on a modern, sleek, glass-screened marvel. One that emanates no light and no colour. And while you sit there in the dark, waiting for something to happen, and the score drones against your eardrums, beating you into submission, you look deeper into the nothing, and you see yourself reflected back. (laughs) Your unshaven cheeks, your slacked jaw, your sunken eyes struggling to keep focus on the warped image bounced back into them. And you lose sense of time itself. You consider reaching for the remote to see how long it's been, but you're sure it'll stop any second. So you wait, and you wait, and you wait. You want it to respond in some way, any way, but it doesn't. It's just you and the void and the void and you. (laughs) Because the deeper you look into it, the more of you you see and you feel alone, startlingly alone. And the feeling overpowers you and you sink lower and lower into yourself. And the void begins to tower over you. It becomes monolithic. The void made physical. The absence of everything becomes the presence of nothing. Its endless possibilities are a gaping maw. Unexplored, untouched, unconquered, unknown. It swallows you whole. It teaches you. It shows you everything. How to crawl, how to stand, how to walk, how to fight, how to think. You evolve. It births your consciousness. In the hold of its gaze, you feel the ever-expanding and contracting flow of time. You witness your life, your death, your rebirth. It spans millennia. The past, the present, the future. The beginning, the middle, the end. And at the end of the endlessness is you. This is the opposite of spectacle. But it is here that we see it all. And that's why this is my eye of the duck. So those opening two minutes. Two minutes and uh, 56 seconds, which... If I've done this right, is exactly how long it took me to read that. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty brilliant that that is the monolith, right? It is. I mean, the the I I felt as though when staring into that blackness at first, I I felt myself sort of, you know, this is the void of space, and then the TV sort of became the monolith, and I was like the monolith is the physical representation of the void. You know, he's, he's taken this, this absence and made it a physical presence. And I think so much of what this film does well is, is place this person, you know, at the end of time and space, you know, it's, and, and, and that idea, you know, so much of what draws me to, to science fiction and to these space stories is that people will, 
go to the ends of everything. They'll, they'll, they'll leave the planet behind. And that's the kind of thing that someone only does when they are looking for something, right? They, they, you know, that's, it's just this notion of exploring. They're trying to find something. And of course, the thing they always find at the end of the universe is themselves. And I think this speaks also to the notion of just imagination, right? Like he's giving you this ambiguous open-ended thing and saying, what do you think? You know, yeah. and therefore he, in that way, he's asking you to fill in the absence, to fill in the void, to fill it in with yourself. Um, which is, of course, that's what filmmaking is, right? It's filling in the absence with your own imagination. Um, so to me, the, you know, it's, it's space, the monolith, filmmaking, they all yeah. kind of become one thing to me. The logic of the camera movement would suggest that the black screen is the monolith because there is at least one moment where the, the camera rushes into the monolith mm-hmm. and then becomes a black screen and then cuts to, you know, space or something. Yeah. So if we're using that logic of the camera motion, which if you're going to trust anything in this movie, it's at least the, the logic of, of the form, you know, the formal stuff, the filmmaking of it you know, the where the, the places the camera is placed, how it moves, how the edits are structured. Those formal elements probably hold all the secrets to what this movie is about, if anything. Yeah. And yeah, a black screen, I think, is such a, uh, it's such an important part of a movie. I mean, it, like there are fades to black and, and there are uh, black flashes, like movies all start and end with a black screen and Kubrick here, perhaps he's asking like, well, what is this black screen? You know, what if that was a, what if that was a diegetic like part of this film? Yeah. And he's, he's asking (laughs) as, as anyone that, that goes to space asks like what is out there in the black? Right. Right. And it is a literal void. And I remember talking with you about this on our Dr. Sleep episode of, I was having trouble coming up with like, like grasping at what is the shining actually about? Like, what is the <laughs> narrative underpinning or not the narrative? Like what is the the story of it beneath the plot? Because it's got a great, really fun Stephen King plot. Mm-hmm. And in the Stephen King book, it is very much about like alcoholism and its effects on people and addiction. I don't know that Kubrick from my point of view, is all that interested in all that stuff as much as he is interested in these really kind of conniving and compelling ambiguities, right? He's really interested in the ambiguity. And I think he is interested in the experience of watching a film. Yes, that was where I was going with this. That like, he is so good and and powerful, you know, we were saying before about his confidence and what not to show but he also has, he, he wields such power in knowing how the audience will connect and allowing the audience to make those connections and come to their own conclusions. I said on that episode, the shining is about nothing, but it's probably the one movie that I watch every year of my life. Like it, I'm not a guy who like watches movies over and over every single year. I don't have that, that many like traditions or rituals with movies but every year I find myself watching The Shining, thinking about The Shining, you know, exploring, you know, yeah. reading The Shining, like anything that I can get, because there's just something about it that 
I connect with and that inspires me. It's and the same thing with this the, movie. Yeah, the experience. Right? This, this is why I was saying earlier, you know, um, you know, you, you were joking that I transcended or I was saying I get to the end of this film and I just feel great about having watched this movie and I just want to watch it again. <laughs> it's because I, I think, uh, even though we we run this show where we're we're seeking to try and like define something, uh, I found such pleasure in the undefinable. You know, yeah, like that. That ultimately was the thing I I I gravitated towards is is literally a black screen, literally like the you know the the absence of everything, something that cannot even be defined. And I'm not going to tell you that I'm I don't believe that what I've done here has actually really tried to define it. I'm just sort of. Uh, enumerating the experience I had with it and the ways in which that, you know, kind of mirrors the, the film itself. And there, there is kind of like a democratic notion in that, that, you know, anyone can watch this film. It's, it's not really like stuffy at all, no. despite like the, the reputation it has. There's really not much going on in here. Like anyone can sit down and watch monkeys beating each other with a bone and then like astronauts getting, you know, tortured by a, a scary noise, a man fighting with a robot. I mean, it's all like colors and signals and sounds. It's, it's, I mean, Kubrick, I, I would, I guess would say has made some, some stuffy films that like you need to really sit with and like listen to and, and, and pay hard attention to and think I mean, very they're, critically they're about wildly entertaining. Like that's the thing about that's Kubrick. True. Like we never yeah, really talk true. about the fact that Kubrick is a wildly entertaining filmmaker. He is. Yeah. And like, that may be one of the biggest effects he's had on a guy like Spielberg of, I mean, there, there was a great quote I pulled from the book. I'm glad I remembered to mention it. It's be a perfect time to mention it is, uh, he said that in making every single shot, every, every, you know, part of the art direction, everything in this film had to fulfill at least one of these three factors. It's, was it interesting? Was it believable? And was it beautiful or aesthetically superior? So like yeah. everything is, is, you know, with the intention of, of hitting all three of these, if not at least, you know, or, or at least one. So, you know, if you are, if you're filling every part of your film with those three things, you're bound to have a fucking entertaining picture, right? Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's the same reason why we gravitate to a filmmaker like Michael Bay, for example. Who, oh, yeah. You know, he, he, you would never accuse Michael Bay of uh, making the most, you know, thematically uh, intriguing films. But he designs every shot for, like, its maximum, like, you know, dynamic uh, composition, you know? And if yeah, every shot yeah. is designed in a, a, a sincerely maximalist way like that, you will at the very least be entertained. You might be beaten into submission by it at times, <laughs> but you'll definitely be entertained. You could probably say the same about Zack Snyder too. But, uh, I mean, this might sound like, this might sound hypocritical because I was just saying that, uh, you know, Marvel movies are, are becoming so uniform and it, it's like, it's becoming boring. And, but there's something certainly to be said about like movies being fun, entertaining times. Like this is definitely a fun, like 
experience. Oh, I had a great time. Especially, yeah, especially if you go to see it in a theater, if you ever have a chance, like yeah. this is like an amusement park or something. I mean, it's, yeah, if, if you're in, if you're in the, the New York area, you know, the Museum of the Moving Image, I feel like every year they, they do this, yeah, they do, they, it they do a 70 a millimeter series and they always play 2001 and it is well worth uh, going to see. I remember, uh, I think the same thing about video games too. It, it, video games as a medium is much younger than film, but it's growing fast and they're starting to be innovations there that are are really, you know, making games like a a really vibrant and like exciting new place to tell stories. But often when I'm playing some of these newer games, I'm thinking like, remember when video games were fun? Yes. (laughs) Remember when when a video game was like, you know, a plumber, like kicking like a cartoon bomb into yeah. a mushroom like that shit was fun <laughs> have, have you watched the new season now of, i of, cry <laughs> yeah have you, have you watched the new season of mythic quest no i still haven't you should watch it because it's very much about this 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 exact thing of like you know uh the the notion that like well that game is shitty and it's like yeah that game is shitty but it's really fun. And like this game that is perhaps the most like technically brilliant thing that anyone has ever <laughs> created is just quite simply not enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. It's like prison simulator. Like I don't <laughs> want to play that. I mean, it really like breaks my heart. Jesus Christ. But like, that's not fun. But bringing it back to movies, like a movie that really speaks to all this is, is a movie like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, which I'm saying, you know, disparaging things about like, the new Ant-Man movie. Uh, and that seems to be like a colorful and strange movie that voyages to all sorts of places we haven't seen before. And yet all of it looks like everything we've seen before. And then you see a movie like into the spider verse, which is from the same, like, you know, uh, corporate industrial superhero complex machine, whatever (laughs) the same bullshit, the same characters, it's all the same shit. And yet it's so singular and so distinct and like, so like you, you become so compelled by just how distinct it is and how fun it is. Like there is still fun to be had in film as a, as a form of artistic expression, not just in like the narrative fun of it. Like not everything has to be like like Deadpool or something like (laughs) there is fun to be had in the way that film as an art form, you know, in, in what it offers to people as, as creators and what it offers to audiences as, as viewers, you know? And I think Kubrick in a movie like this was fully compelled by like, actually, why don't we just say nothing in the end and just like, you know, take them to a place that is very, unique and ambiguous and let's see like if people get it and let's see what they come up with and which it's the the ultimate trip yeah which maybe leads us to what could be our final note of so now what did kubrick uh yeah does he say happens in the end i'll tell you uh i'll tell you kubrick's quote here kubrick said i've tried to avoid doing this ever since the picture came out when you just say the ideas they sound foolish Whereas if they're dramatized, one feels it. But I'll try. The idea was supposed to be that he is taken in by godlike entities. Creatures of pure energy and intelligence with no shape or form. They put him in what I suppose you could describe as a human zoo. 
to study him. And his whole life passes from that point on in that room. And he has no sense of time. It just seems to happen as it does in the film. When they get finished with him, as happens in so many myths of of all cultures in the world, he is transformed into some kind of super being and sent back to Earth. Transformed and made into something superhuman. We have to only guess what happens when he goes back. It is the pattern of a great deal of mythology, and that is what we were trying to suggest. <laughs> I, I almost wish I'd, I never heard that because <laughs> it, it limits my experience because I have so many and other he ideas says of that. what he happens knows there. That. He says, yeah. if, you, if you say it out loud, it sounds foolish, you know, he, he, it, but if, if you dramatize it, you feel it. And that's what matters. If you dramatize it, you feel it. Kind of sad because I can never unhear that now. And now anytime I have a reading of... Doesn't affect me at all. Really? Nope. So you can have your own ending and you don't need Kubrick to... I don't need any of that because I know I know that when I when I watch that, that final act of the film, it doesn't matter what the fuck it's supposed to be. I'm transported either way. I see. I just feel like he goes to a place that is so imperceptible to humans that they they create this space for him that he can understand. And in there is like this, you know, this chamber for him, like to cocoon and then become something new. But, uh, I guess I'm wrong. <laughs> that is canonically not what happens at the end of what did, what did you want to happen here, Dom? Did you want me to say what was exactly no. in your head? <laughs> because there's, uh, no, I mean, there's no there's no joy in being right even if you I were know. right i had uh i guess i should never have asked it's like <laughs> uh that great that great lynch interview where he, he says, says Eraserhead no. is his most personal film <laughs> explain why and he says no I, I th- there I is thought, such power to that you know i really did consider dom you know reading my reading stopping at and that's why this is my eye of the duck and just refusing to engage in anything that you said about my reading and if you <laughs> asked me if i was going to engage i was just going to say Sorry. no <laughs> but i thought that that would, uh, very, that would not make for a very good podcast <laughs> might because i might get very angry <laughs> um one last thing that i just wanted to make sure you were aware of is that um hal is a millennial because he's born in 1992 Wow. Beautiful. I just wanted to make sure you knew that. Love that. I'm very excited to see what happens next to our man, space baby. Me too. Dave Bowman next week on the, uh, the ever evolving human race. I wonder, <laughs> I really have no idea what happens. I know, in that film. I know nothing about 2010. I, I truly, I truly don't know anything. Um, and I'm very excited for it. Thanks everyone for listening. We want to hear from you. Tell us about your Eye of the Duck scenes. You can find us on all social media at Eye of the Duck Pod. Email us at contact at eyeoftheduckpod.com. And we also have a Discord. If you would like to join the conversation about movies, movie scenes, and all things film, find an invite link to Eye of the Discord in our show notes. You can find me on Twitter at Dominic Nero or on my website at domnero.com. You can find me on social media at Adam Vole, that's V-O-L-E, and you can watch my films online at adamvolerich.com, that's V-O-L-E-R-I-C-H. 
The main soundtrack in our episode intro is the recording of Strauss's On the Beautiful Blue Danube that's heard in 2001 A Space Odyssey. The audio cues are pulled from various space movies that we cover in this series. The music you're hearing right now is the recording of Cacciatorian's Gayane Ballet Suite, also from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Our logo is designed by Francesca Volrich. You can purchase her work at francescavolrich.com slash shop. This episode was edited by Eric Gunnison. Thank you, Eric. Special thanks to Parth Marate for providing research for this episode. Thanks, Parth. Next week, we are covering 2010, the year we made contact, which you can rent or buy from your favorite video on demand platform. I thought they made contact in 2001. Nope. In 2010, that's the, that's the year they make contact. Wow. All right. I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. That happens. And the next time you watch a movie, remember to keep your eye on the duck. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, But after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.